Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 934 of the Juicebox podcast. On today's episode of the Juicebox podcast, Ed Damiano from Beta Bionics is here to talk about the Eyelet Bionic Pancreas. Ed and I had an almost two-hour-long conversation about Eyelet. I got in a ton of listener questions. Ed told me all about the company, how things started, where it is now, when he expects people to be holding an Eyelet, and so much more. While you're listening... Please remember that nothing you hear on the Juicebox podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. Here are three quick ways you can save money. Your first month of online therapy, betterhelp.com forward slash juicebox. Use the link to save 10% off that first month. The offer code juicebox at checkout at CozyEarth.com will save you 35% off your entire order. And if you want to try AG1, go to AthleticGreens.com forward slash juice box. When you do, you'll get five free travel packs and a free year supply of vitamin D with your first order. This episode of the Juice Box Podcast is sponsored by US Med. U.S. Med is the place where my daughter gets her diabetes supplies from, and you can too. Go to usmed.com forward slash juicebox or call 888-721-1514 to get your free benefits check. U.S. Med always provides 90 days worth of supplies, and they have fast and free shipping. They carry everything from insulin pumps to CGMs to diabetes testing supplies. You want the Libre 2, the Libre 3, the Dexcom G6, or Dexcom G7? U.S. Med has it. You want Omnipod 5? You want Omnipod Dash? U.S. Med has that too. They have Tandem T-Slim X2. Oh my goodness, they have it if you're looking for it. USMed.com forward slash juicebox. Before Ed comes on, let me tell you two things. There are some ads that are in this episode, but I'm not going to put them in the conversation. They're at the end. So if you want to hear them, please hang out and listen. I appreciate that very much. I want to remind you to go to the private Facebook group. Juicebox Podcast, Type 1 Diabetes. Head in there. There's 40,000 active members. It is the most lively and lovely diabetes Facebook group known to man. That's my opinion. If you're looking for the Bold Beginnings Diabetes Pro Tip Series, Type 2 Diabetes Pro Tip Series, Defining Thyroid, all of the things that people who listen to the podcast love, if you can't find them in your podcast app, go to juiceboxpodcast.com. There's a menu at the top you'll be able to find everything there. Or if you're in the private Facebook group, hit the feature tab at the top of the group. If you have a question about diabetes or autoimmune issues in general, we've covered it on the Juicebox podcast. Welcome back, even though you don't remember ever being on the show. And um, <laughs> I barely remember talking to you, but you were definitely on this podcast in the first year of it. Um, mm, wow. I cannot find in the list anywhere like what we would you have been calling it islet back then no no so if you think it was 2015 uh we definitely had give my wife was the one who named it the islet i called it the bionic pancreas before we had the name islet and she came up with the name islet and i think that happened in 2013 hmm. is my guess but we weren't you know we were using both terms sort of interchangeable there was no company in 2013 or even 2014 wow 
Well, so then how did I, well, how did this all start? I'm assuming you or your child has diabetes, right? Yeah. So that is how I got involved with this. So um, my uh, my background is in applied mathematics. And specifically, I, I do what I would describe as mathematical biology. That's what I used to study. And what does that mean? I would, you know, I was looking at, at uh, mathematical models of how the inner ear works and the fluid structure interactions that happen when you move your head through space, the vestibular system and your sense of balance and equilibrium. Understanding the underlying mechanics of that was very much a mathematics problem. And I spent some time working on that. I got very interested in blood flow in the very smallest microvessels in the microcirculation, blood flow through capillaries and understanding various important physiological phenomena that are connected to blood flow in microvessels. And that became a big part of my research effort. And um, that's kind of what I did. It was extremely theoretical, not not uh, not the least bit practical. You know, I, I would write published papers in the journal of fluid mechanics and you know pnas and things like that and you know i there were three people who read the papers and i was two of them you know that's what i used to say so it was very very arcane stuff and um and i enjoyed it very much and certainly i could make, make build a career around it but when my son developed type one in infancy he was 11 months old um it, it became pretty clear that um you know, I had some basic skill sets that I could lend to the problem of building a device that could control blood sugar levels. And I had a student at the time, Firas Al-Khatib, who was a, he was a PA, he was a master's student in my lab and he just come over to the US and he was doing some work in my area of, you know, blood flow. I had him, you know, working on a problem that he wasn't much interested in, frankly. <laughs> and uh, he'd finished, finished his master's thesis and he was sort of looking around for something else. And just five months after Firas arrived, uh, David developed type one. He was, as I said, 11 months old. My wife's a pediatrician and she actually made the diagnosis. And um, I turned to Firas a year or so later saying, listen, I've been thinking about a device that could deliver insulin and glucagon to automatically regulate glucose in people with type one. And at the heart of that is software, is, is smart, intelligent software that determines how much insulin and glucagon to deliver to get good glucose control based on a continuous stream of data from something like a continuous glucose monitor that didn't really exist in 2000 mm -hmm. or 2001 or two. There was a glucose watch, you may recall, the Cygnus glucose watch. Yeah. That was in 2000. And that didn't work particularly well, but it did get FDA approved. And so I, I envisioned that we would build the software that makes those, those dosing decisions. And he got really interested in that. I offered that up as a potential PhD project. And that became the sum and substance of his PhD. Hmm. And that was around 2002. So a little over 20 years, we started thinking about what that centerpiece, you know, technology would do, how it might work. And he started working on developing the mathematical algorithms. Initially, it was a single algorithm. Now we have three separate algorithms that run in parallel uh, on the islet. And that was at that time, he and I were at the University of Illinois. I was a professor of mechanical engineering and this is in Urbana-Champaign, and, and he was uh, my PhD student. He finishes his PhD under under uh, in my lab at, at UIUC at Illinois, and then I went to Boston University in 2004, uh, took a faculty position in, in biomedical engineering. Firas came over to Boston and did a postdoc in my lab. Firas still works with us today at Beta Bionics, so he's a uh, you know, um, VP of Research Innovation. And... Um, and so he stuck with this project from the very beginning. We came to BU and started 
uh, animal studies looking at uh, con- glucose control with the algorithms that he'd been developing for his PhD in pigs that we could induce diabetes like pathology in mm-hmm. and uh, we could test the system in in you know basically pigs with diabetes we did that for about three or four years and then I met Stephen Russell my clinical collaborator of many years now 17 years I think uh, in 2006 at MG at uh, Joslin Diabetes Center he was doing a fellowship he was doing his postdoc fellow there and um so we started collaborating on bringing that system to human trials and by 2008 we'd started uh, clinical trials at the master's general hospital clinical research center in the inpatient setting while you've been talking it occurred to me i don't think you've been on the podcast i think i mean i i, I, I would totally some, believe you if you said it either way <laughs> i so i it, something about when you said boston it hit hit me and i researched I researched, not researched, but re-searched my my blog just now. Yeah, yeah. And in 2016, January, a woman named Kelly was on to talk about being in your trial. Ah. That's what this is. Yeah, and, that's and, much later. And, and your name, like, rings my bell because of that. And obviously, I know who you are. Like, you know, we've never met before. I, I, I know your face. You and I have never met before. And if somebody asked me to describe you, I could do it. Right. So <laughs> I'm, I'm that aware of who you are. But yeah, I think that's what I was thinking of. Wow, that was the 40, yeah. 40, oh, no kidding. Okay. I All mean, right. I've done a lot of interviews, as you might imagine, and so I could easily be convinced that I've given an interview <laughs> to just about anybody. <laughs> I want to be I want to be completely honest. There are lovely people who um, help me with the Facebook group, and if someone <laughs> asks a question, I'll say, I don't know, have I ever said that? And somebody else will have to come in and tell me if I said it or not. <laughs> I'm beyond being upset or, or embarrassed by that. Um, so that's how you get this whole thing going. That's yeah. fascinating. But my daughter was two when she was diagnosed, like right after her second birthday. I wow. do not meet a lot of people whose kids were younger than that usually. No, it's extremely rare. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think it's you know probably just a handful of people who are diagnosed under the age of one with actually with type one. You have some kids who get this congenital, this congenital, um, this um, neonatal diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, that is something that's exceedingly rare, but it, it happens. And it's often misdiagnosed as type one. We actually thought David might have that, but neonatal usually see that around six months of age and he was around 11 months yes. so he was actually old for neonatal we did some testing and it it, it was pretty clear that he doesn't have neonatal he has type one uh, have- but he's been on an insulin pump since 13 months of age wow which one did he have then minimed 508 wow. you don't hear those and ones. we used his old minimed pump in the pig studies so yeah. once he graduated to the animus we took his minimed pump and put it in the pig studies yeah how about that <laughs> do you have other children yeah, my uh, my daughter's two years older than David, uh, so she's uh, twenty six now. David's twenty four, and she's about to, she just finished grad school, and she's going to go into another grad program in the fall. Wow! Any other autoimmune in your family? Yeah, Emily herself, she has celiac disease. Okay. Um. So uh, that was diagnosed. Um. Toby was doing a workup on her just for short stature, and she thought maybe she should be a little taller. <laughs> and she um she ended up having celiac. That's sort of in the in the in the panel when you look at look at that kind of thing. So she uh she was around twelve or so when we figured that out. My daughter was the smallest person in her school, and we figured out she had hypothyroidism, and she's eighteen now, and she's five seven. Oh, good for you. So yeah. she did just fine. My we, wife's five seven. Yeah, we, we <laughs> caught a good, we, it's a good height. Yeah, yeah. But we caught yeah. it. I I mean, I'll never know if, what would happen if it wouldn't have got caught. But it was hard not to catch. She was like basically passing out, like asleep. She had no like energy at no all. No energy at all. Yeah. Um. But it was just really something. Like she was the tiniest little person. 
And then yeah. now she just isn't. It's really <laughs> really something else. What what the right uh the right thing can do to help you. All right, so yeah. that's got to be enough. Everybody's like, just ask the question, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we certainly have a kinship there with a very young person and, you know, to watch it through infancy, diabetes progress through infancy into toddlerhood and, and, uh, you know, preschool age and then the school age kid and the teenager and now the young adult to see that whole arc, uh, pass before me over the past uh, 20 years is quite amazing thing. It gives you a perspective that a lot of people don't have either. You know, you can kind of really step back sometimes and see all of the different impacts that. I think get lost on people from time to time. Yeah, you yeah. Know, it's uh, it really is a, a hell of a, been a hell of a journey. Okay, so modern day. A few weeks ago, I was speaking at an event. I met Stephen Russell. Right, he works. Yeah, you see, did. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was like, you know, spilling the beans that you guys were about to get an FDA approval. So tell me about that process a little bit. So all, once you say we've got a thing, it works. This is the thing we want the, the FDA to say yes to. Like, when was that? How long have you been at that part? Mm, Great question. So I think it'll surprise you. In order to be really ready to submit an application to get market approval or market clearance, as it's called, by the FDA for for this device, you have to have a clinical data set that is is collected in a pivotal trial. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that you, you you conduct a study that you design with the FDA, you work with the FDA to design what that trial looks like. And it has to... Uh, you have to capture data in such a way that you're you've got a, a good quality system wrapped around it, and you're you're pulling the data uh, together. We use the Jabe Center for Health Research as the contract research organization to help us put that package together, and then you build a cl- a clinical study report at the end of the trial. Mm-hmm. And the Jabe Center puts this together. You know, we have input into that that document. But ultimately, once the clinical study report's written, that has all the data that was captured from that pivotal trial. And all the other testing for the device is done, which is an enormous amount of work because you're building the system from scratch. The the islet is, in fact, a device that's built at Beta Bionics, not by contract manufacturing. We build it in our own facility in Irvine, California. And building a device is, is a non-trivial task, a, a durable medical a, a piece of a d- durable medical equipment. And so it has its own quality system wrapped around it. We have a manufacturing process at, at Beta Bionics to build the system. And then it, it undergoes an enormous amount of testing. All kinds of tests that were done for insulin pumps also had to be done for a bionic pancreas, along with this clinical data set that was captured to this very large pivotal trial. You pull all that together in a document that is tens of thousands of pages long, literally, and we submit that to the FDA. So the clinical trial, the data needed for that trial was collect was was basically in hand in December of 2021. Okay. All right. So the trial, mo- the trial, the substance of the trial happened between January and October of 2021. And the JAPE Center worked really quickly to lock the database after the last participant last visit in October of 21. And within really essentially within two months, they had the readout of the of the primary outcome analyses that we were uh, we were waiting for. Hmm. We were very pleased with the results. And then went the process of building the clinical study report into the early spring, early part of 2022. Okay. Um, and so by 2022, we 20 March of 22, we submit the application and we got clearance in May of 23. So 14 months later. I'm going to forget the, I don't know the terminology, but were you able to claim that your device was similar to another device or did you have to start from scratch? No. So we used, um, I hope you're not getting this, uh, there's a guy doing some yard work here. I hope you're not getting that. <laughs> I hope your editing can cap- do something magical. Um, if is it, it, 
it seems okay. Yeah, I think that, right, that microphone good. I made them send you is very close to your face. So I don't yeah, think Yeah, I think it's working well. And I've got the headset and everything. I can hear yeah. it, but as long as you can't, that's great. Yeah. So um, yes, the the hybrid closed loop systems on the market today, we could use one of those as the predicate device um, to, as they call it, mm -hmm. to our application. And so the FDA suggested that we use that as the predicate device. And we went forward with that, that submission with that in mind. So are you able to get the device okayed and the process okayed at, at this in the algorithm at the same time or did you have to make the pump prove the pump work and then step forward and do the next piece no in fact um we had no intention of ever building an insulin pump and i really want to make it clear that the vinyl pancreas isn't an insulin pump and really and that's not just that's not just semantics it's, re it's really not okay. there's no way to program basal rates carbs and ratios or correction factors on the island uh, there's no setting of, of parameters like that. So you can't operate the islet in any configuration other than closed loop. So it's it's every 100% of every dose is determined autonomously by the device. And even if the CGM goes offline, you enter finger stick measurements to keep it going. And it will use the finger stick BG to determine the dose at the time if necessary and dose automatically at that time. Wow. So the more finger sticks you enter when the CGM is offline, the more glucose, better glucose control you could get because it can have, has more opportunities to check in. But it gives basal insulin when the CGM is offline because it figured out the basal rate. So there's no insulin pump under the hood like there is with hybrid systems. At all. There's no manual mode no. to go through. This thing. There's no manual mode. And why that's important is because, well, there's a number of reasons why it's important, but in the context of your question, m every other hybrid closed loop, all, all the hybrid closed loop systems, and I would say the islet isn't, isn't that, but the hybrid closed loop systems started as insulin pumps. And they all started in a world where you didn't need clinical data. Insulin pumps don't require clinical data. They oh. require what's called human factor studies, where people come into a conference room, they won't hook up to the device, but they'll go through the user interface and show that they can do the basic functions. And then if that human factors report goes into their market application. So the tandem system, the the the, the T-Slim pump, for example, the Omnipod 5, the Medtronic system, the Omnipod, not 5, but the early Omnipod system and the Medtronic insulin pumps all went through human factors testing, but they didn't require any clinical trial data. Hmm. We did not make a user interface where the islet could be a standalone mad, you know, manual insulin pump. In which case, if we had done that, we could have put that through the FDA a few years earlier, had a manual insulin pump and wouldn't have needed a clinical trial for that product. But to add the algorithms needs the clinical trial. We did it all simultaneously. So not to be too obtuse, but basically the islet is like a self-driving car with no steering wheel and no pedals. And the algorithm, yeah. you get in and it yeah. drives you where you go. That's not obtuse at all. Those no. that is the that is exactly oh, okay. the analogy I make all the time. Oh, okay, great. Right. So it's like sitting in the in the passenger seat of a self-driving car. You can't adjust the insulin dose. You can't. You can't override an insulin dose. You can't give a bolus. Right. So you can um watch the thing control your blood sugar. <laughs> right. You can watch the self-driving car go and you can watch it turn its steering wheel and so forth, but it really is determining 100% of every dose. Mm -hmm. Now you can, one, one way to interface with the device is to let it know that you're having a meal and we have something called a meal announcement, which we can talk about. But even that, when you in issue a meal announcement, you're not determining the size of the insulin dose that, that is delivered in response to that. It figures that out by itself. And then it comes to know what that appropriate dose should be when you give a meal announcement for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then it cleans up the rest downstream of that. We can talk a little bit more in detail about how that works. I think that'll be a worthwhile thing to talk about. Yeah, no, for certain. I have one more question about that, then we can definitely move on. Am I wrong to say that in the very, very beginning, you imagined this happening with a tandem pump? 
No. No. Yeah. So it, no, not not no at all. Actually, in, in the very beginning, I imagined it happening with something called the aviator pump. Oh, I really? presume you've never heard of that. I don't know. So Dean Kamen had built a pump that was uh, 510K cleared, an, a traditional insulin pump, and he licensed it to Abbott Diabetes Care. Abbott had a possession of this Abbott Navigator, which my son used from 2008 to 2012. It was in the US at that time. And it was a continuous glucose monitor, a phenomenal one, really. And the notion was we were working with the guys at Abbott to put our algorithms in between the Aviator insulin pump and the Navigator uh, CGM, and we would be the smarts in the middle. And what happened was Abbott had a change of heart, and they they did not proceed with the Aviator pump. They never they never marketed, even though it was five ten k cleared. And they uh, the Navigator itself, they abandoned that product in favor of what is now the Libre in, in, and Flash glucose monitoring. So I found myself without a partner. I never intended to start a company. I never intended to build a hardware platform. My intention was to take the software that Ferris and I were working on and collaborate with Steven to test it in human trials and then license it off, or BU, Boston University, would license that off to an Abbott or a Medtronic or a Tandem. Yeah. So we did start talking with Tandem because one of the reasons Tandem is called Tandem as I understood it from 2011, is because they were always contemplating multiple fluids, pushing multiple fluids, not just one. Okay. And so there was great interest in um, in a dual chamber T-Slim pump. And I was working with a guy named Sean Saint, who is now our current CEO at Beta. Uh, Sean in was a companion? Am I right about that? Well, he was not, not when I met him. No. When I met him, he was a young whippersnapper um, uh, engine engineer at Tandem Diabetes oh. in 2011. And he approached me at an ADA conference and he said, we're about to get, we think we're about to get 510K clearance of the T-Slim pump, which he was right. A few months later, he did. And I started working directly with Sean in 2012 to build our first mobile device that ran on an iPhone 4S and c commanded insulin and glucon doses out of two independent Tandem T-Slim pumps. Mm -hmm. And, and the woman, Kelly, you interviewed would have used that system. Oh, so okay. you'd put two T-Slim pumps in your pocket. One delivered insulin, one was repurposed to deliver glucagon, and this giant brick that had an iPhone 4S on one side and a G4 Dexcom receiver all bundled together. Right. And that was our iPhone bionic pancreas for about eight years we used that thing. Wow. Wow, that's something. Look how far it's come and how long it takes is um, yes. a little humbling, actually. For me in particular, yeah. I mean, I never expected this. First of all, I never expected to build the whole thing or build this, build the, the team that built the whole thing. Um, but I never um, would have expected it would take as long as it did and cost as much money as it did. Yeah, um, it just it's just a huge undertaking to yeah. build the infrastructure to do something like it, this. It's funny because when you talk about the first idea, like it occurs to me, couldn't couldn't any pump company just accept a bunch of algorithms from a bunch of different places and say, look, just choose the one you want to use and we could adapt. But I guess nothing, everybody wants to be proprietary at some point, right? It's not just that. You're right. That has historically been the case. But until recently, the FDA didn't make that easy. And, they, and the FDA sort of wanted to get out of its own way. It didn't like the fact that there are all these different companies making algorithms mostly academic groups back then, right? Mm -hmm. uh, not so much companies, but mostly academic groups. And companies were licensing algorithms from academia. Um, but then you had a few companies making pumps and you had a few companies making sensors. And so initially, the idea was at the FDA is that we want these sensors, these continuous glucose monitors, of which there were like three on the market and now there, there are a few more, to be able to talk to any one of these pumps yeah. and integrate with any one of them. And then they, they evolved their thinking to say, okay, now let's, 
uh, allow these pumps, you know, the, a certain type of pump to not only talk to any one of these CGMs, which they called, they dubbed ICGM, you know, interoperable continuous glucose monitor. Uh, but then they wanted, they made this thing called uh, ACE pump, which was a, a device that, that, um, that could talk to any one of these ICGMs and could host algorithms. And you could just plug and play. This ACE pump can work with this ICGM, that one or the other one. And this ICGM can work with these three ACE pumps. And that they wanted that interoperability. And then they said to sort of flesh it out, the third technology in this piece, right, in the system is the are the algorithms. And then they came up with something called IAGC, Inter Interoperable Automated Glucose Controller, which was one of these plug and play algorithm um, 510Ks or market applications. Hmm. So now if you could have an IAGC tested in one ACE pump with one ICGM. And it, once you do the clinical data, uh, collect the clinical data for that ACE pump, IAGC, you could put it in different ACE pumps without having to do another clinical trial. And you could make it talk to other ICGMs without having to do another clinical trial. So they're trying to be able to really promote this interoperability and all this different cross communication um, in this in this ecosystem of CGMs, pumps, and algorithms. Mm -hmm. And so they, they, they gave birth to all of these, these three different regulatory pathways. And now we have an interoperable space that for the first time, now that as of just recently, in addition to the G6 Dexcom, which is a you know ICGM, there's now the G7 Dexcom on the market, which is an ICGM, and there is the Libre 3, which right. is an ICGM. It's the first time we've had more than one ICGM out there. Right. Did you ever consider licensing it to pump companies? Or was that- That's what I wanted to do. That is what you really That was wanted, my initial right? intent. And that's yeah. why I was working so closely with Abbott. And the problem with this was that when you start working with the med tech industry, the, the, it can be, it can be, they can become quite capricious. And the reason is, especially big med tech, you have these divisions, diabetes divisions in these big med tech companies. So they do a bunch of things, right? But one thing they do is diabetes and they have a diabetes division and they have a president of that division. The president of that division, if they are very successful, very often gets promoted into some other space like cardiovascular within that company, leaving in that person's wake, the need for his or her replacement. So another president comes in with totally different objectives. Mm -hmm. And they might say, you know, I want to pivot away from type one to type two. And this technology that my predecessor has been, been investing in, I'm going to divest all of our interests in that and move into a new product. And they carve out their own little legacy for themselves. And so I couldn't rely on the med tech industry. I saw no way to do that when there's that kind of capriciousness happening in the system, it's built right in right. to the way these companies evolve. You, you don't want to spend six years turning yourself into the right quarterback and then your coach leaves and he says, I, I want to run the ball more. And now, exactly. and, and now you're exactly. Done. I get it. Okay. Oh, uh, wow. Um, I don't think I have any more questions around that part of it. Have, have, I mean, there's a lot of history, right? I mean, we yeah, could talk yeah. for an entire podcast on the history of this. Yeah, for sure. But the long and the short of it is we ultimately evolved our thinking through experience that we had to build this thing ourselves yeah. from the ground up, and, soup to nuts. And so I let, because it's not an insulin pump, it needed a different name. So you, I that word just doesn't exist in your day. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny because if you think about the evolution of the of my terminology, I go from the nerdiest of terms that you could imagine, like a geeky engineer. And if you look at my slide decks from 2008, 9, 10, 11, my, my, my terminology gets worse and worse. And I hit an all-time low in 2011. So initially, I called it a, a closed-loop blood glucose control system. It just rolls right off your tongue, right? <laughs> and then I realized that that's just not 
you know, it's a very academic, you know, thing. Engineer in particular would say a thing like that. And then I tried to come up with better terms. And I never liked artificial pancreas because artificial pancreas tells you what it isn't. It isn't a real pancreas. And we know it's not a real pancreas. Can we have something that's more descriptive? So uh, my, wor- my my lowest moment was when I called it a prosthetic pancreas. And I may <laughs> as well just shown a picture of a little pump with crutches on either side of it, right? But in fact, it wasn't a pro. I mean, it is a prosthesis, if you will, in a, in, a, in a way, but it's just not the right terminology. The next year, I said, what is it? Let, let's be positively descriptive and not negatively descriptive what it isn't. And then I looked, I thought about bionic pancreas. And I looked in the dictionary and it's, you know, it's a technology that, that imitates, you know, uh, biological processes through, through electro, electromechanical systems and electronic means. That's exactly what we do. Mm-hmm. And so I, I coined that term in, I think, 2012, and I've used it ever since. And that's kind of the category. It's a bionic pancreas. My wife came along a couple of years later and said, I know what the, you know, what the device should be, should be called. It should be called an islet bionic pancreas, obviously an homage to the islets of Langerhans. Yeah. That's a great idea. Also, I don't want to get off topic before we get on topic, but how come you're an engineer and so personable? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that I, I, uh, I, engineers get a bad rap, you Do know? They? Okay. All right. That's fair. <laughs> I think many of them can be quite personable. <laughs> Excellent. I'm just like, wow, you're like a good storyteller. And I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you tell the story enough times, it becomes rote. Yeah. I, I, there are a couple of things in my head that if I say I, I can shut off while I'm saying them, uh, because I've, I've said them enough. <laughs> of course. All right. So, uh, you've got, you've got your clearance now. Is it, I mean, I am assuming you're a smaller company. So what's it like? There's got to be a ramp up plan, right? Like you're going to launch yes. and then like, how do you foresee that going? Yeah. So I can give you a little bit of insight into, into, you know, our, our vision for how that should work. Remember we did, as I said earlier, a pivotal trial. So we took the islet, uh, by the end of 2020, we had basically locked this thing into this little device. that looks just like this thing I was just showing you. Yeah. And, um, we could then, with funding from the National Institutes of Health, we had a large grant from the NIH to help pay for this study. It was what's called an investigator-initiated trial. So Betabionics didn't sponsor the study. It was uh, it was basically sponsored by that Jabe Center for Health Research. Uh, the grant came in through my lab at Boston University and uh, went and it dispensed out to 16 clinical sites. And so we had subcontracts, sites at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and Stanford University, and Massachusetts General Hospital, and so on and so forth. We had 16 sites, and we chose these sites carefully. Stephen Russell, myself, and Roy Beck sort of went through across the country, and we said, we really want to pick sites that can bring a lot of ethnic diversity into the trial. So we don't have uh, you know a study that consists in so- almost entirely of uh, white, very wealthy, and very educated people, but rather a study that is a much better cross-section and a better mirror of the population of the population at large. Mm-hmm. So we chose sites in Northern Florida, in Southern Texas, in Detroit, in Atlanta, Southern California, where we could get in a lot of ethnic diversity into our cohort and bring a, bring a, a, a broader demographic into the study. So we designed that study with those 16 sites as the targeted places where they'd each bring in anywhere between 20 and 35 participants over the course of that 2021 calendar year. And that was really always my, my thinking about how we should bring this thing out. Um, we should start by using those sites as the places to launch the device. And when Sean Saint came on board as CEO over the summer, you know, I think that jived well with him. He's like, okay, well, I'll have, we'll build a sales team and they'll break up the country into sort of eight. It's a targeted launch. We break the region up, the country up to eight territories. Mm-hmm. Within each of those territories resides one or two of our pivotal trial sites from that study. 
And so those are the people who are, in my mind, the de facto experts of using the island. They're the only ones who've ever used it um, in a, a, a close to real world setting. Our trial was designed to be a very good approximation of real world usage. People were on the device for 13 weeks. So they understood the device in a way nobody else could until you use it. You can't really understand and appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so th we, th we thought that was the best place to start. Now, in each of those regions, those territories, there are several other sites that are also going to participate in, the, in our launch. Um, but we are moving very quickly. And because we're a small company, as you mentioned, uh, we have a, there's a kind of agility that we have that allows us to go from getting 510k clearance of a, in a company that's never launched a product to launching the product within the space of about a month. Yeah. So, you know, we have certainly launched the islet. Um, it is, uh, you know, the, 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 we have we're using a distributor uh distributor uh durable medical equipment approach to distributing the device like uh, like in, uh, like a traditional insulin pump would follow um and so we've you know we've shipped our product out to distributors and they can in turn ship those to people with type 1 diabetes and typically in those regions and those regions cover the, a, a big section of the us right and so we just want to get our feet wet in the first few months and just get experience with the pivotal trial sites and then expand and add territories in the fall mm -hmm. and then more sites as well. Do you see it as a years long project to get up? Like when, when will everybody be able to walk into their doctor's office mm -hmm. and say, I like, Yeah. Know. Good question. So, uh, right now at launch, um, we were, we weren't able to get, for example, Medicare and Medicaid services to cover the device. You know, it's, this is a device that you would, you would, uh, use, uh, private insurance and government insurance to pay for the device. You'd have a copay, mm -hmm. just like a traditional insulin pump and similar, similar to the supply with the supplies. Um, but you can't, we weren't allowed to negotiate with CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, prior to 510K clearance, which we only obtained, you know, just less about four weeks, a little less than four weeks ago. Once we got 510K clearance, we can start entering into a contract with CMS. And that takes anywhere between, you know, two and three months. Yeah. So anybody on Medicare, Medicaid services, needs to know that we can't get it out to them right away just because there was no way we could have teed that up yeah, prior to clearance. You can't have the conversation but, before the clearance. Exactly. But with 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 uh with uh, um commercial insurance, we were able to through the distributor network, distributors across the country that sell insulin pump supplies, we were able to set up contracts with them. So the minute we got clearance, they could place an order. Mm. So we literally took orders right away upon FDA clearance. That allows us to get out to a lot of people in the country in the, you know, in the back half of this year who have uh, private pay. And we're hoping by say the fourth quarter, maybe, or maybe even sooner than that, third or fourth quarter, we'll get government insurance on board once that contract sells. And that'll allow us again to then penetrate further out and, and, and reach more people. Who do you see as your target user group? Um, the vast majority of people with type one, but specifically, um, we see, uh, uh this technology as playing really well in the hands of people who are on MDI therapy. Uh, in the hands of people who are willing to, and I think this is most people, let go of their diabetes management as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And what I would say is who it's not for is who we call the knob turners. And I would have to admit that I am probably one such person, right? And I bet you are as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. Probably. <laughs> probably. So what do we do? Well, we have our, this little tiny child in front of us who has type one diabetes, and we are going to pour all of our energies into making sure this kid's glucose is as tightly controlled as possible without destroying their lives, right? We don't want to interfere with their lives so much that they're just, they're just a little experiment. So you have to do it in a way that, you know, they can coexist with this, but you want to give them as good a care as you can. So we were all over this little guy and we grew him up that way. And he organically began taking more and more responsibility of his diabetes management. But I have to say that in taking over that responsibility over the course of a decade to the point where he goes off to college with a animus pump and a G6 Dexcom or G5 Dexcom back then, um, he's doing a really good job managing his diabetes. And he is a tinkerer. He's going to adjust, do fine tuning of insulin dosing. He's all over it multiple times a day. Now, many people who do that and do well with that are going to be able to use the islet successfully and comfortably. Mm -hmm. There may be an adjustment that they need to make and get used to handing the steering wheel off to some you know, autonomous system, but they can sometimes make the adjustment. There are others who won't be able to. It'll provoke too much anxiety and they just won't get through it. And the reality is you don't know what sort of person you are until you try it. Mm -hmm. So living with the eyelid is the only way to find out if you can let go of the wheel, as you like to say. Yeah. And so we will offer a 90-day return policy with the eyelid. So we want to make sure we really want to make sure that the right people find this device, but we also want to make sure that those who find that the device is not right for them, you know, find a way to a device that is a loop system or a, a, a more of a manual system where you can, in, 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 you know, you can uh, take more responsibility over insulin dosing. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. I mean, so what's the uh, straight from the listener questions? What's the target A1C going to be? Like, what do you expect the islet to pull for people? Well, so. Um, our pivotal trial was, by the way, the largest pivotal trial ever conducted for a uh, automated insulin delivery system. Uh, it was a huge trial, and we en enrolled children and adults simultaneously. Um, so we went all the way down to age six and all the way up to age 83. Mm -hmm. So we had a very broad range of ages. And if you typically, the way you think about you know where the A1C comes in is you typically look at adults separately from pediatrics. It's very commonly done. Um, and statistics, you, you hear usually parse it out that way. So we found that the average A1C uh, that the device achieved was about 7.1% in adults and about 7.5% in the kids. That's pretty amazing, actually. It's yeah. a really good A1C. And we did not increase hypoglycemia relative to the standard of care. And I think it's important to emphasize that the way we designed our trial was to have a standard of care study arm. So not everybody who went into the trial used the islet right away. So what happened was there was a randomization. You, you, you were screened into the trial, and when you were enrolled, you would randomize to either the islet, which is called the intervention arm, or the standard of care arm. And by standard of care, we mean whatever your insulin therapy was when you came into the trial, do that, but do it with a G6 Dexcom. Now, if you were, for instance, using a CGM already, then we don't need to bother introducing a G6 Dexcom. If you use the Medtronic, then that's your standard of care. You've got CGM and we give you a blinded G6 Dexcom because we want to capture all the data on G6. Mm -hmm. um, if you're using a Eversense or a Libre, continue doing that, but we'll give you a blinded G6. And if you didn't use any CGM, we taught you how to use a CGM if you went into the control arm, into the standard of care arm, and they became a CGM user, at least for that 13-week period. So the, the, the study cohort divided across these two groups. And because we had a standard of care arm, we could keep track of how well people did in the trial on their own care. And people tend to do better in clinical trials than they do on their own because mm -hmm. they're being watched. They're being, in, they, you interact with them more. It's called a study effect, yeah. the Hawthorne effect. 
And so we we want to keep track of that. And whatever the islet does, it's really the difference between how much the you, you subtract out the improvement the standard of care arm saw from the improvement the islet saw relative to baseline. Mm-hmm. And that difference is the difference in, in in the improvement of the islet. You know, you can quantify the improvement. And what we found was that uh, it was statistically significant uh, re- reduction in HbA1c of half a percent relative to standard of care. So we saw a 0.5% improvement in, in mean glue in A1C relative to standard of care on the islet. And that was a statistically significant difference, which means that the likelihood that happened to chance is exceedingly small. How about if you take a, I'm, I mean, I heard you, I heard the pride in your voice when you said how you chose, you know, the people to go through these testings. And I feel like I understand the underpinning of that, which is that some companies pick ringers, like people who they know are hmm. going to do a good job, right? Um, how many times, like how much data do you have about people coming in with just wildly out of control A1Cs, 11s, 12s? Did they bring them to a 7? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. So um, we were very careful not to have an upper limit on HbA1C, and that's unprecedented. There's never been an AID study where... Um, where there wasn't a limit on upper limit on HbA1c, a pivotal trial. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, you know, for for a market application for a device, and so we were really clear about this. We wanted to make sure that no more than a fifth. We asked the sites to limit uh, the, those those people that you randomize, such that n- the limit limit you know, or fill certain buckets. So make sure that at least a third of them have an A1c above eight percent, and no more than a fifth have an A1C below seven. And that's because these large epidemiological studies out there like the T1D exchange and other studies have shown that on, on typically in the US, uh, all these studies tend to corroborate that only about one in five people meet the American Diabetes Association goal for therapy of an A1C below seven. Yeah. That just is a, it just continues to ring true, at least adults. Kids are even worse, unfortunately, they have even worse outcomes. But adults 18 and older, it's about one in five are achieving goal and 80% aren't. So we wanted to make sure our cohort as much as possible reflected that. So we asked the sites to try and limit the enrollment of people with A1C below seven and to make sure you had at least a third with A1C above eight. We also wanted to make sure that at least a third of the cohort was on MDI at baseline. Right. So we didn't take pump users, you know, as as an as exclusive requirement. We could, we allowed people who were on pumps and people who were on hybrid close-up systems to participate in the trial. So if it was an FDA cleared device or an FDA approved device, it was admissible into the study. Yeah, I feel that. When you mentioned it earlier, it struck a chord with me because, you know, I, I somebody asked me recently about like, how do you stay so made, motivated about making the podcast? And I was like, for all the people I reach, it's a very small percentage of people who have diabetes. And, yeah. you know, those other people are not running around with A1Cs in the sixes. Um, no. You know, and, no, they're, and they, they're overwhelmed. They don't understand what they're doing. They've long past given up. And they're just, they're on a, they're on a ride with their eyes closed, wondering when it's going to, like, come to a stop. And, I mean, I, I think the islet is for know, those people. The yeah. islet is for most of those people. Mm-hmm. It's not for everybody. And that for on one end of the spectrum, right? As I was trying to to, to yeah. emphasize, the knob turners who are going to have anxiety by giving up control and can't get past that, it's not for them. And there are therapies. Fortunately, we have so many good alternatives now. There are therapies for them. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have to at least you make you know you you have to tend to what Stephen Russell calls the care and feeding of the device. You have to make sure there's insulin in the cartridge. You have to make sure the CGM is streaming data. You have to make sure the infusion set is intact and working, right? And you have to make sure the battery is charged. So that is a care and feeding level of responsibility that's essential for the aisle to help you. Mm-hmm. 
And there are going to be some people who won't do that either. And 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 also couldn't for reasons like you can't be pregnant and use it, I would imagine, because the standard- it, it's not indicated for pregnancy. We right. did not test it in pregnancy. So yeah. that would have to be done, you know, separately as another trial. Are there so, reasons big- that a doctor couldn't write it off label at some point for somebody under six? Or are you going to have to do that testing before that gets okay? Oh, physicians can write do do pretty much anything they want with off-label usage. Yeah. They they can use these devices, not just ours, but any of these devices off-label. We just right. can't train to that, and we just need to be very clear what is on-label. Yeah, and what is on-label is people with type one diabetes who are six and above. Okay, who are and and not pregnancy. So that's certainly not something we have an indication for. Right. So so for clarity, like I can't use Islet and achieve a five five A one C. Like there's no way for me to manipulate it or do that kind of stuff without lows. Ah, good question. So I noticed one of your, one of your, uh, from some of your users had, um, uh, some of your listeners had a question similar to that. Um, so what we found is about, uh, 46% of our adults had a mean glucose after 13 weeks on the island of about 100, about, about 46% had a mean glucose under 154. And an A1C of 7% corresponds to a mean glucose of about 154. Yeah. So at 46% of the cohort had a mean glucose below, um, below 154, about 27% of the cohort on the islet had an A1C below seven. Hmm. So almost a third. So what does that mean? You know, what was the lowest A1C in the islet? It, it, it was in the fives, by the way. So we did have somebody who was 13 weeks on the islet and they ended with an A1C sort of in the mid fives, but it's it's unusual. The islet tries to bring people's mean glucose and A1C up a little higher. If you're sitting down at a mean glucose of 110 or 120, right. you're likely gonna see it increase toward 130 or 140 or 150. So, and it it is that increase that some of those folks who enjoy being down there, maybe they pay a price of hypoglycemia, but they want to be down there, uh, skimming the trees, so to speak, will be frustrated by that rise. But the reality is, um, all the clinical data suggests that there's no advantage to an A1C of five and a half over an A1C of six and a half. There's almost no signal for microvascular damage below an A1C of seven, which is why the, these uh, you know these societies like the Endocrine Society and the American Diabetes Association have these goals for therapies, goals for therapy. So uh, nuts and bolts. Um, I, I want to go over just how it works for a second. So yeah, uh, I'm going to eat a meal. Am I right? Like, I probably should just ask you, but my understanding of it is, and I'm assuming if this is my loose understanding, it's every about a lot of other people's. I announce the meal by saying this is breakfast, lunch, or dinner, and then I say whether this is similar, smaller, or larger than I'm accustomed to eating. Is that it? That's it. Okay. So even rolling the tapes back further still, to start the islet on your on day zero, right, you get on the islet, you enter your body weight, mm-hmm. and that is it right? So there's no programming of basal rates. There's no programming of, of um, insulin correction factors. There's no programming of carb to insulin ratios, and there's no carb counting specifically, right? We do ask that you be carb aware, and I'll make a mention of that in a moment. But so to start the system, you enter your body weight. You have to learn how to hook up the infusion set and pair it with the CGM and so forth. But then you enter your body weight, and then you go bionic. And then you swipe to go bionic, and the system starts dosing every five minutes of every day and adjusts uh, insulin th- therapy according to your needs, your ever-changing insulin needs. But okay. the meal announcement works as you described almost exactly. Okay. But to, to give you a little bit of, of color under the hood as to what's actually happening when you do that. So with the meal announcement, um, you know, you just simply sw- you swipe to unlock the device and you just press on the little knife and fork. There's a little knife and fork here and you press on that and it asks you, you know, is this, uh, you know, what meal type is it? And you get to bucket it, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. So given the time of day, I'm going to choose, uh, let's just say, well, it depends on where you are. Let's just say I choose uh, dinner. 
And then it asks you, is this usual carbs for me more or less? So three buckets and no numbers, no, mind you, right? Mm -hmm. This is diabetes without numbers as a primary care physician that we've been working with for years, who was really the one who coined that. And then you just simply, once you say, you know, usual for me, for instance, let's choose usual for me. Um, then you just swipe and it then determines the dose at that moment and it begins to deliver. So what happens is it gives a dose of insulin at that moment. So if you have the food delivered, you don't pre-meal bolus. We discourage that. We ask people to wait until the food is in front of you, not to worry about fat and protein, right? Just focus on the carbohydrates on your plate. And by that, I mean, is this, is this bowl, is this, is this lump of rice, the usual amount of carbohydrate I'd have for my lunch, say, or my breakfast or my dinner. And it will then on the very first offering of a meal announcement, say for your first lunch meal announcement that you issue, it'll give a bolus at that moment. Once you, once you say usual for me, lunch, for example, It'll give a bolus based on your body weight initially, and it'll be quite conservative on that first attempt. And then it will watch every five minutes of the rest of the day, how much, you know, what your glucose does, and it will add insulin as needed or suspend insulin as needed. And we have two other controllers that are running separate from the meal announcement controller, the one that gives that bolus up front. One we call the basal controller or the basal algorithm, and the other algorithm we call the corrections algorithm. And they're working in concert every five minutes and they adapt on multiple timescales to your changing needs. But the correction algorithm will add insulin above and beyond what the basal algorithm thinks you need for your basal requirement. And if you'd sees the blood sugar start to rise, even in the, in the face of that meal announcement bolus that was just delivered, the correction algorithm will add some additional insulin. And at, on, and tomorrow, when you issue another meal announcement for, say, lunch, a usual for me, it will look to see yesterday when you did this, uh, the meal announcement gave three units of insulin, and then we added another three units of insulin, of correction insulin, in the, in the four hours afterwards. And that was not the right balance. It wants the meal announcement to be a majority of your mealtime insulin over the four hours after the meal announcement. And if it was short of that, it'll make it a little bigger the next day you do it, or a little bit smaller if it was too much, if it was all of the insulin. And then it'll start adapting that. And, it, and, the, and the body weight thing becomes less important. You initialize it with body weight, but it's allowed to depart from that mm. very quickly and start adjusting the size of that lunch meal announcement to be uh, to account for most of your four-hour insulin, but not all of it. And it separately adapts the meal announcement for breakfast separate from lunch, separate from dinner, and it buckets those three. And if you have a snack, you know, if you have a, an evening snack, you might want to bucket that with dinner. If you have a morning snack, you know, a little 11 o'clock-ish, like Winnie the Pooh, you might call that a breakfast snack. Okay. Right? Um, why doesn't it need a pre-bolus? Is it, because, the, I mean, I've used a number of different algorithms with my daughter, but most specifically Loop and Omnipod 5. And they they seem to have in common that once you put in insulin, they take away basal and then work backwards is kind of how I think mm -hmm. about it. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Um, does, are yeah. you staying, I understand that. is the islet staying aggressive when the bolus goes in? Because you, my daughter can't eat food without pre-bolusing. Like whether I did it, like, so what is it doing? Is it, is it matching the, the power of the rise with insulin and then getting the hell out of there before it causes a low? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, well, yeah. So what it does is it, it um, the basal controller is a, is a control that adapts on multiple timescales. So let's just focus on that one first, mm -hmm. the basal algorithm, what we call it. And it, it has, you know, it, it, it's adjusting sort of an average basal rate that it figures out by itself over time. And it, and there's an, there's a, 
an ability of the basal algorithm to shut basal insulin off completely if you're starting to go low. If you are low or you're tending low, it, it can turn the basal basal insulin dosing off completely. Right. Um, but it's adjusting this on a very short time scale, looking at your glucose levels every five minutes. It's just got to be very responsive. I'm going to turn off basal insulin if you're dropping too fast or if you're low. Or it can just run along and it also can see daily patterns. So it also adapts on a diurnal nocturnal time scale of 24 hours. And so it can see that, you know, if suppose you're a child who has growth hormone secretion upon the onset of sleep at around 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night, and they tend to need more insulin because of that, because the growth hormone causes, you know, release of glucose by the liver. And so the basal control will start to see that and it'll start to adapt upwards. And it might see this pattern that typically around this hour of the day, I need more basal insulin. It'll just sort of, it'll, it'll see that pattern and it'll reinforce it. But if you change as you grow into an, a, young, a, a young child and then a teenager and you start having a cortisol secretion uh, just before waking in the dawn hours and you no longer have the growth hormone at night, now that shifts toward you're needing more basal insulin, say, in, at five in the morning, it'll figure that out automatically. And similarly with intercurrent illness. So if you have an upper respiratory virus and you see uh, a sudden need for more basal insulin or more uh, correction insulin uh, for two or three days, it'll see that automatically and realize that I've got to give more insulin to keep the glucose down at this average that I've been trying to achieve. So I will... Um, adapt upwards for that two or three or four days or a week when you're more insulin resistant. And if you have a vomiting illness and you're very insulin sensitive, it'll do the opposite. It'll back off and become less aggressive. So it's doing, the basal controller is doing that, the basal algorithm. And the corrections algorithm is also figuring out your insulin sensitivity automatically. Not in so much in terms of a, a, the number, what is your insulin sensitivity factor, but rather recognizing that this person over the over the days and weeks, months and years their insulin resistance might change. They might need more insulin when your blood sugar hits 250 than it used to when you were six years old than, than, you, than you need now when you're 14. And it'll suddenly start adjusting that upwards as well. And you'll get more correction insulin on top of it. And it adapts on multiple timescales, not just five minutes and daily timescales, but intermediate timescales as well. And that adapting on multiple timescales allows these two algorithms to learn. It's really a self-learning system and allows that system to engage in what is essentially called lifelong learning. So it does see patterns on a daily basis and it is able to adapt to your ever-changing insulin needs. Meal announcements adapt according to how you provide input on what is tip usual meal for you, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And you're comfortable calling it learning. It's not just going off of what it's seen recently, but it's it's remembering stuff from the past. Yes, it is. And so it is storing information from the, this past week on where your insulin needs were higher and lower. So it is a kind of an autonomous learning system. I wouldn't call it artificial intelligence. Right. Um, it does It does do some pattern recognition, though, in the sense that if it sees, um, if it sees, you know, that the basal algorithm is giving more insulin at this, you know, early morning hours over and over again, it will see that and it will it will it will uh, it will tend to be higher in that in that period unless for some reason in that particular morning you don't secrete the cortisol mm -hmm. and you're more insulin sensitive it can very quickly turn off the basal insulin yeah, automatically well that does, so it is a learning system in that regard yeah so that brings up a question that a lot of people asked and that I was wondering just while you're talking use an idea like uh, uh, somebody getting their period like so one day like I'll use my daughter because I'm sure one day she'll love to listen back to this podcast and hear her period discussed <laughs> this much but. Uh, in the days approaching, um, Arden can be need more insulin. And then when the event happens, she can fairly suddenly need less. And, right. and it changes dress. So how do I, how does, like, 
can I just like whisper in the eyelet's ear, like, yo, I got my period or like, like, how does that like, you, cause you can't tell it stuff like that, right? No, you can't tell it stuff like that. And it doesn't have, it doesn't have memory over a monthly cycle, mm-hmm. right? It's really looking more over the, you see, seeing patterns in the past week or so. But just to be clear, the eyelet learns and adapts very, very quickly. So what we found was in the pivotal trial, remember we start the system with your body weight. So imagine you have a teenager, a raging hormone adolescent who weighs 70 kilos and uses 90 units of insulin a day, and an adult who weighs 70 kilos who uses 45. The islet will figure out that difference in about 24 to 48 hours. That mm-hmm. difference, in, that's fast, right? Yeah. That's fast enough to handle the in, in, increased insulin demand around periods, around intercurrent illness. The physiological changes in insulin demand happen over the space of a day or so. It will see that. And if you suddenly become very insulin sensitive, like you just described, it can shut basal insulin off and and it won't dose uh, correction insulin if it doesn't need it, if you're not hyperglycemic. So if it sees you sort of staying low, it'll back off completely on basal insulin or or, or shut it down dramatically so that you you, you won't go low as easily as you can go high. So it definitely is biased in trying to prevent hypoglycemia. That's like the first order of business is to limit hypoglycemia. How does that work with exercise? So with exercise, um, I would like to introduce you to the idea of a bihormonal system, <laughs> right? <laughs> that is indeed unequivocally the best way to deal with exercise is that, you know, is to be as biomimetic as possible. That is how the pancreas handles exercise. It, it reduces insulin secretion simultaneously with increasing glucagon secretion. And we really do need a bihormonal system to, to handle e- exercise elegantly in type one. All single hormone systems are vulnerable to exercise, even insulin pen therapy, all of it. Yeah. So you have carbohydrates to help and other other tricks to deal with that using carbs, you know, maybe carbs to treat or being fasted, going into exercise, or different ways to deal with the people have different ideas about that. And many of those tools are going to be used with the single hormone island. But specifically, disconnecting from the device is what we recommend if you're going to engage in exercise, just disconnect at the infusion set. If you're going to engage in exercise that where you find yourself going low in, in on your other therapies, mm. try disconnecting from the island. There's no setting of temporary basils. But if you do have to go beyond that and say it's not enough just to suspend insulin, I also need to usually take some carbs mm-hmm. uh, ahead of exercise. If you're going to carb load like that uh, to prevent hypos during workouts, what we ask you to do is to disconnect from the islet first and then take the carbohydrates, not the other way around. Because if you do the carb loading and forget to disconnect and you work out, it'll see the rise and it'll start dosing just when you don't want it when yeah. you're working out. So the order is actually important there. And that's right. something that's a little different from traditional pump therapy. Okay. Would you say that the system, if it's trying to address a, a higher blood sugar, for example, does it address it with basal insulin or with a bolus? Yeah. So it has the correct, the correction algorithm is responsible for giving insulin above and beyond what the basal is, sees its responsibility to be. So the basal insulin, the basal insulin algorithm is sort of swimming in its own swim lane. And then you've got the correction algorithm that swims in its swim lane. And when you start to have hyperglycemic excursions, for whatever reason, uh, stress hormones, uh, hormones, stress, uh, you know, whatever, intercurrent illness, uh, or carbohydrates, right? If you forget to meal announce, or if you meal, even if you do meal announce, you tend to see still a rise after that. The corrections algorithm's responsibility is to come in and give that additional insulin above and beyond basal that handles hyperglycemic excursions. And if you forgot to meal announce, it will provide all of the 
additional meal insulin, if you will, it doesn't know it's meal insulin, it's just correction insulin needed to bring you back into range. But if you do forget to meal an ounce, um, it will step up and do that. What we tell people is that what we've seen is that typically if you forget to meal an ounce and you eat a meal and it has a sufficient amount of carbs to cause a glucose excursion, you'll typically go, you, you'll likely go higher than you would if you did a meal announcement. You'll be higher for longer. And there is an increased chance of late postprandial hypoglycemia if you don't do the meal announcement because the meal announcement gets the insulin up front. Yeah. It's always best to get the insulin up front than to wait until you see the rise. Right. But it is designed to handle glucose excursions when, you know, of any sort, even those occasions when you forget to meal announce. Okay. So here's another idea. What if I'm a very low carb person and I weigh 150 pounds and I put on eyelet and I say, I weigh 150 pounds and I'm eating breakfast and it's normal for me. Like, but normal is three eggs and two slices of bacon and I have a piece of rice. What happens then? Great question. So as I said, with the meal announcement, all we're asking you to do is be what we call carb aware. Meaning, you know, know what the difference is between the three macronutrients. Know what a fat, a protein, and a carbohydrate are, mm -hmm. right? You should, that's every, every, every person should know that, whether you have diabetes or not. Everybody should have that level of nutritional education. So with the islet, we expect that level of nutritional education and we provide educational materials in our training documents to help understand some of the macronutrition, some basic nutritional guidelines. But essentially, Understanding that you know if you're eating eating eggs and bacon for your for your breakfast and you're having no carbohydrate, there's no meal announcement to be had. It doesn't matter if there's 80 calories on that plate, right? Or or right. you know whatever, you know, hundreds of calories on that plate. Uh, you know, 150, 300, 500 calories. If there's no carbohydrate and there's no need for a meal announcement. Suppose you're a grazer, and you never have more than. Um, you know what we typically say for adults: if you're having fewer carbs than is in a single slice of bread then there's no need to meal announce. That's just a rule of thumb. Again, we like to stay away from numbers, mm -hmm. but for an adult, you might think of a, you know, a piece of bread uh, or anything less than that. You, you can probably just skip the meal announcement and let the corrections algorithm do the rest. Hmm. So for small snacks or meals where you have very low carbohydrate, you wouldn't meal announce. Where would I expect my blood sugar to go in a scenario like that? Like oh, well, I mean, it, it, of course it varies, but I mean, if you had a, a, a very low carbohydrate meal, you know, you could see an excursion, you could see a, a, a small excursion to, you know, 100, 200 uh, to 200 mg per deciliter and the correction algorithm could kick in and then bring you back down. Okay. Um, if you had a very high carb meal, like suppose you had, you know, um, 120 grams of carbs, right? If you're a teenager having a big bowl of cereal, cereal in the morning, um, it's not un unreasonable to see your glucose go to 250 or 300. Uh, even with the meal announcement, because it takes time, because we do encourage people to do it at the site of the meal, but not before. Mm -hmm. And by the way, if you forget the meal announcement, and it's been more than 30 minutes since you started the meal, we we ask you not to do a meal announcement then. Just okay. let it go. Let the corrections out and do it. But it isn't unreasonable for your glucose to go to 250 or 300 if you have a very large carbohydrate load, even with a meal announcement. Gotcha. But then the correction out will kick in and, and take care of that. And I couldn't say have... Uh a breakfast that I call normal and then realize like, oh, hell, it was larger than, can I go back and tell it? Like, hey, you know what, that was a large breakfast or do I tell No, what you would do meal? is the way you would try and deal with that is suppose you have a breakfast and then you want to have, or, or dinner and a dessert, right? Yeah. Or a meal. Let's, let's, let's get it out of the category of breakfast, just in general. If you have a meal 
and you look at what's in front of you now, estimate, is this usual more or less than usual for me? Mm -hmm. And so in what's in front of you now, I'm going to clean my plate. I estimate, I estimate I'll clean my plate. Let's do usual for me and, and swipe. And then it'll give that, that meal do dose and it'll start watching your blood sugar rise. Now let's say 45 minutes later, you're going to have uh, a dessert and dessert comes and it's got more carbs than the meal. Then you could add right at that moment, you could say more than usual as another, because it's like another meal and you can just stack it right on, well, attach it to that. It's not stacking because you really do need that insulin. So you're attaching a, a one meal announcement to another and they're separated by say 30 or 45 minutes, whatever it is between the time you get your primary meal and you get your dessert. So desserts can very often be more than usual because they very often are carb rich. Mm -hmm. So you shouldn't resist. You'd still call it, so say you're having a dinner and you have a usual for me dinner, typical amount of carbs, and then the dessert comes and it's, and it's you know, 50% or 75% more than your carbs than you'd have in the, in the, in the dinner you just, you just swiped for. You then swipe for a more than usual dinner as your, as your uh, dessert. Okay. Um, I'm going to look through a couple of these, these, uh, these questions here. Um, sure. Do you have an idea of what it would cost out of pocket once it's available? Um, out of pocket? Oh, you, do you mean with insurance? No, if I didn't have insurance, I wanted to pay cash. Oh, yeah. It. Do you have? Yeah, you I do think. Do we, yes, you can. You can buy. You can do, buy. We have one of our distributors that allows you to buy direct if you were to do a cash pay. Okay. Um. So, yeah, I, and I think it's very, very similar to the price you might pay for um, a, 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 an insulin, a durable insulin pump. Okay. Um, so, you know, several thousand dollars is what you'd expect to pay for out of pocket cash pay. Mm -hmm. And you would purchase that not directly from beta, but one of our, we have like eight or 10 distributors that we're working with. Um, there'd be one distributor you'd go to, to do a cash pay. And there's a special price for that. And you can, if you like, if you're in a warranty and you want to get out, you can do a cash pay. Again, it's important to know we do have the 90 day return policy. And that's important for people to find out if they can live well with the islet yeah, or if it's course. not the right device for them. And it's covered by a wider range of, of insurances. Is it that, is. And how, what kind of a hell is that setting up on the business side? People to go out and knock on insurance company doors. And I mean, it's a dedicated team, right? First yeah. of all, uh, we have a dedicated team, a market access team at Beta for uh, helping people with reimbursement. But the way we started this is through the what's called the DME channel, the Durable Medical Equipment Channel. Right. And through the DME channel, you have distributors across the country, and each distributor has set up uh, contracts with all the commercial payers. So they had that, they're like an, a buffer for us. Mm -hmm. So they've had all those conversations. And similarly, CMS uh, can go through those distributors as well. Once we have our contract, our, our contract with CMS set up. So we will sell through distributors at launch. We do also, you know, we're very interested in getting into the pharmacy channel as well, which we think is, is in our future. And we have a, a several reasons why we think that makes a lot of sense. And it's best for people with diabetes as well as, as, as providers, mm -hmm. but for now and at launch, uh, it's all through the DME channel. Okay. Um, uh, uh, infusion sets, just one or are there options? We have a, one steel set at launch and one Teflon set. They're both 90 degree, six millimeter, and they're made by Unimedical. So we are using the Unimedical uh, family of infusion sets. So if you're familiar with the terminology, we have the inset one, which is six millimeter, 23 inch tubing mm -hmm. uh, to the eyelet cartridge. And we have... Uh, the contact detach for the Teflon set and the contact detach for the steel set, which is a 90 degree, you know, uh, I think it's a six millimeter, uh, 29 gauge steel set. So you said something earlier that is not leaving my head. So I'm going to have to ask about it. If I sit down at a burger joint and I have a cheeseburger and French fries 
And I go, okay, the roll's 30, and I'll even throw in five more for the burger just in case. And and the fries are 80 carbs, so I'm, I'm, it's 120 carbs. But I know for certain that 90 minutes from now, when my digestion slows down and that fat slows everything down, I'm going to see a rise up to 220 if I don't bolus for the fat. How does it deal with that? Right. So you're, you're, you're invoking this idea of a square wave bolus or something where it's been a very complicated way with a traditional pump. You'd think about saying, well, let's release some of the insulin now. And then later, I'm, I want more insulin to come in a second wave. It's gastric emptying happens very, over a long period of time. Right. Because of the fat and the protein, slowing that. Well, remember what I said at the beginning, we have two other algorithms besides the meal announcement algorithm that are running every five minutes of every day. It's like a perpetual square wave bolus ready to be let loose if needed, but only if needed. Okay. So it's watching you every five minutes. And suppose what happens is the meal announcement comes in and some of the carbs are released quickly and you see this rise and the meal announcement insulin catches up to it and you start coming down and you drop to say 170 and now you're at like two hours out and you're down to 120 and suddenly you start to rise the basal control is just chugging away the corrections algorithm is watching you it's like a hawk every five minutes now suddenly you start drifting up to 150 160 170 it starts adding insulin saying basal you're not you this is out of your league I, i'm coming in to take over and so the correction algorithm comes in and starts adding insulin without you having to pay attention to any of that because it's not your it shouldn't be your job to do that is that is that stream thinking they just ate three hours ago this is probably a reoccurrence or does it not care it has no opinions. It just sees it has, a, it sees no and judgments goes, and no opinions. It sees the number and it goes, no, no, no. Yeah. Okay. All it cares yeah. about is your glucose at the moment. And it uses its past insulin history with you. It's, it's learnings from that history and your current glucose level and the amount of insulin that it is, that is pending. It's keeping track of all the insulin that's pending every five minutes and updating that itself. So it boluses the number it sees, not a predictive trend. It's not. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly we have we use something called model predictive control. So it does look, it does make a, uh, an estimate of what the glucose is going to be in five minutes from okay. now, the next step, and then it will update its estimate of that at the next step once it sees the real value and compares it to the model. But yeah. that's it. It's just a five, it's it's a five minute prediction on what your glucose is going to be. But right. importantly, it keeps track of the very long horizon in the to the future of your insulin tail because every dose it gives. It keeps track of how long that dose takes to rise and peak in your blood, which is usually about an hour, right. and six more hours before that insulin I'm giving right now is really go mostly gone. Yeah. And then five minutes later, it gives another dose, and it superimposes that insulin rise and fall profile, and it has that insulin to look forward to. It's it's the, what we call pending insulin action. Yeah. It's accounting for that and predicting what your glucose is going to be in the next five minutes. When I talk to people in in person, when I do in-person talks, I explain to them about there's different levels of or different lines of insulin happening all the time. You put in some here, the basal is hitting, peaking, and tailing, and then the basal from five minutes later is hitting. You can't keep it all straight in your head, right? But so is every bolus. And if you if you really think about it like that, there's there's these constant pushes. It's, it's right. fantastic that an algorithm can like make quick sense of that. And, and that's what it's. Yeah. That's all it does. Like you know. It's really good at this very narrow task. It's much better than we are, the vast majority of we, right? It is much better than that um, because it's it's got one very narrow job. Uh, we do many things very, very well, but the vast majority of us can't do what the islet can do because it, it's the, it's its only job 
and it's doing it every five minutes. It doesn't have anything to distract it. Yeah. So that's all it really cares about. And so it keeps track of every one of those doses and it, and it literally superimposes those doses mm -hmm. one on top of the other to account for how much insulin is trailing off and how much is rising. It's got a cartridge, right? And it for insulin, yes. how much does it hold? It's 180 unit cartridge. And after you prime the tubing, you'll have about 160 units. Mm -hmm. So we found it lasted about three days in the average adult. Okay. But if I pop, I just get somebody to write me a script for more. And so it's, I've never, right. I'm going to, I'm going to sound odd for a second. I've never, I've never used the tube pump. So my daughter's oh, okay. been using exclusively Omnipod since she was four. Uh, but you just pop out that cartridge, put a new one in, prime it and keep going. Correct. So let me tell you two things about that cartridge. One is we have, we have two different types of cartridge. Mm -hmm. One is a patient fillable cartridge. So it's, it's a glass cartridge, 1.8 ml. And you can put Humalog or Novolog in it through the septum. You just draw it out of a vial like you would with your Omnipod into a syringe and then introduce the syringe needle into the septum of the little cartridge, which looks just like the septum on your insulin vial. Yeah. And then you introduce the insulin in, remove the bubbles, and then you load the filled cartridge into the uh, eyelet chamber, quarter turn to uh, of the uh, eyelet connector and tubing to the eyelet, and then it'll prime some of the tubing, and then you prime the rest of it and hook it up to your set. The other thing I want to tell you about is that in the pivotal trial, we used Humalog and Novolog in the adults in the in the randomized control trial, but we also had a, a cohort of adults use Fiasp in a pre-filled cartridge that Novo Nordisk makes, which is identical in shape and size mm -hmm. to our patient-filled cartridge, a ready-to-fill cartridge, and it's filled in a blister. It comes in a blister pack of five cartridges, and it's pre-filled with Fiasp, and so that dispenses with the need to transfer insulin from a vial and pull out the air bubble. And that process takes about five minutes or so. We eliminate that. So with the pre-fill cartridge in the trial, you just popped it out of the blister package, slide it into the chamber, quarter turn, and you prime the tubing. You can change a cartridge soup to nuts, a pre-filled cartridge, a uh, Fiesta cartridge, in less than 60 seconds with the outlet because it's got a very fast motor drivetrain like the Animus pump did, for those of your listeners who are familiar with that. So we, had a, we, we emulate that very fast movement of the rewind and then advancing and priming. Mm -hmm. You can do a, a less than a 60 second change if it's a prefill cartridge. Did you notice um, any better outcomes with Fiasp over other insulins? Not much. Uh, for for uh, one, one thing I'll say is that in almost every every uh, analysis we did, it was very similar to Humalog and Novolog in the adults, mm -hmm. 18 and older. And um, what we found was um, that in every way, it, you know, it had very low levels of hypoglycemia, like uh, similar to standard of care, like we saw with the Humalog Novolog. Its mean glucose was very similar. The A1C was similar. Uh, time and range was similar, 71% with FIAS versus 69% in the adults for Humalog Novolog. But we did see a statistically significant improvement in time and range. It, it improved by 14% relative to standard of care relative to Humalog Novolog islet users, which saw an 11% improvement in time and range. So that was statistically similar, but it's it's not sure. I'm not sure that's clinically relevant, right. but it was a little better. And one thing I'll, I'll add to that, we didn't tell the islet it was FIASP, right? So we have hard-coded in the islet um, knowledge about insulin kinetics. Now, we know that FIASP in the aggregate is absorbed more quickly in uh, most adults or, you know, in the aggregate of a cohort of adults than Humalog or Novolog, and it clears a little faster. So it's a slightly faster drug. 
And if that information had been provided to the islet, we have some pre-pivotal studies that showed you might see better glucose control, lower mean glucose, higher time and range with VASP than Humalog Novolog. But we, for this study, we talked to the FDA about it. We didn't have enough data to uh, to go into a pivotal trial and adjust the the built-in parameters in the device to let it know that VASP is faster. So it was under the assumption, it worked operated under the assumption that it was just like Humalog Novolog. And so it didn't get to leverage the faster kinetics. Mm -hmm. It was in the mathematics that's built into the device. In the future, we'll, we'll visit that possibility, but we didn't see big differences and probably just because we couldn't tell it, it was faster. Okay. Um, if Should people hear that those are the only insulins they can use and think that that's the case or can they use the I mean, I, you can't tell them to use it off-label, but is something horrible going to happen if they put a PEDRA in it or something like that, as an example? Well, we didn't test it with a PEDRA. Mm -hmm. um, we did test it in adults with Humalog, Novolog, and Fiasp. And one thing I didn't mention is that um, is that the uh, when uh, people who randomized to the standard of care arm in the pivotal trial for 13 weeks, they kind of drew the short straw. I mean, they wanted to be in the trial to test the islet, but they ended up randomizing to their own care. So what we did was... Um, those people had the option who randomized the standard of care to spend 13 weeks on the islet after the study ended mm -hmm. so they could cross over the islet. And the vast majority of them did just that. And when the kids crossed over, they all used FIASP in the pre-filled cartridge. And we saw very similar results to what we saw with the adults with okay. FIASP. Okay. So what we have right now in front of the FDA is an application to get the pre-filled FIASP cartridge approved for use with the islet and that's going through the process right now so we're hope hopeful that that will that will come through soon but right in, at launch it's cleared for use of humalog with humalog and oblog in our patient fill cartridge right a couple of ideas around you being a smaller company so people ask questions like you know there's the diehard omnipod people that are like look if it's got tubing i don't want it can they make one without tubing can they get it for kids under six can they can they can they do you have the bandwidth to can they can they can they or where are you at yeah i mean we we do have limited bandwidth but we're very creative about some of the things we can do like for instance um because we we came from an academic realm uh myself and stephen russell in in um you know in the early days of the project um we do try and think creatively about ways to bring resources, financial resources into the company to help us do trials that might give us indications for use for other kinds of conditions, right? Other kinds of diabetes, you know, and so forth. Um, and d different age groups and things like that. So what we have done is we've worked with other investigators who are in academia, uh, like ourselves, and they can put in grant proposals to the Helmsley Charitable Trust, the JDRF, the National Institutes of Health to get funding for studies. Now that dialects FDA cleared to test it in other indications. And so our hope is that we can work collaboratively with academic institutions and clinical investigators like ourselves to do those studies. Instead of it being Stephen and Ed's teams doing those trials, we're now going to work with other investigators like ourselves to do that in the academic realm. So we can leverage all that financial resource that comes from private foundations and government funding. It doesn't come, money doesn't come into beta, but then beta doesn't have to spend the money to do those trials. So that's right. how we hope to get expanded indications. Okay. Um, at, at, you know, at, at this time, at least, and then, you know, as the company gets more resource, then maybe we could do some, some sponsored studies as well, but we're limited in what we can do outside of, you know, we really want to get the bihormonal pivotal trial started because we're very committed to bringing the bihormonal islet, yeah. um, to people with type one. I, I want to get to that. I just, I have a couple more questions first. Of uh, course. Um, so 
I don't know anything about what you did. Like, I don't have technical knowledge. Did you decide we're going to shoot for a 7A1C, or is that what the algorithm is capable of? Like, were there four dials you could have turned, and you'd be on here telling me, oh, it keeps people around a 6A1C, and you spike to about 180, not too, like, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. or is that not the case? Yeah, so the way we did this is we started by studying the bihormonal system, and we, we, we chose a glucose target, um, and aggressiveness factors and things like that initially. And then, uh, and we did these studies first in the inpatient center at MGH, just with the bihormonal system. Once we started human trials and after a while, we, you know, it became clear to us that with the bihormonal system, occasionally the glucagon channel might be, might not be available. Mm -hmm. And so what happens if the glucagon runs out while you're out and about, or what happens if you have an occlusion or your glucagon infusion set fails? Then if that happens, you know, it needs to sort of fall back safely into an insulin, a single hormone insulin only configuration. And we hadn't really tested what that looks like. We weren't back then thinking about making a single hormone islet as a product, mm-hmm. right? We were thinking about this being a fallback. And so we started doing studies testing the bihormonal bionic pancreas against the single hormone bionic pancreas against standard of care. And what we found was the single hormone bionic pancreas was a very differentiated technology in its own right. It couldn't, but it had had to, all of its glucose targets had to go up higher to be able to get really good glucose control and not have hypoglycemia. And so we started studying different glucose set points for the insulin only system and for the bihormonal system. And with single hormone, we found you could safely have these targets up here and not have much hypoglycemia. And with the bihormonal ones, we could have safely have these targets down here and still not have hypoglycemia because glucagon is helping that. So we could basically have effectively something that could give a little bit more insulin up front, a little bit more aggressively, just because the targets are lower that it operates under with the bihormonal. And so that's how we came to figuring out what these targets were. So the A1C that it gets or the mean glucose that it achieves was really, it fell out of the mix. We we weren't shooting for a particular target of, is it going to be able to get 154? We said, what does this system do configured this way with this target? What is the average a cohort will get on the system? And we found out with the single hormone, it was about 155 in adults. And the bihormonal in in, in adults was more like 140. Mm -hmm. So there's about 15 mg per deciliter improvement by adding the second hormone and being able to use these lower targets. With single hormone, as you lower the target, every time you lower the target, you see a lowering in the mean glucose, but a concomitant increase in time below 54. With the bihormonal system, we saw as you lowered the target, you saw a progressive improvement or lowering of mean glucose without an increase in hypoglycemia, but with an increase in glucagon usage. Okay. So we, we exchanged uh, hypoglycemia for slightly increased in glucagon infusion. Mm-hmm. And so, so we can keep these lower targets safely. So when you get to a dual chamber at some point and you're doing glucagon and insulin, what do you think you'll be back on here telling people about their outcomes? Oh, so what we've seen mm-hmm. in the, as I mentioned, what we've seen in all of our pre-pivotal studies that we published across, over the years is, is a mean glucose that is about about 15 mg per deciliter lower than what we saw with the islet pivotal trial, which okay. would correspond to about a half a percent lower A1C. Oh, and okay. as as you may recall, I, I said about about uh, almost half the people had a mean glucose below 154 on the single hormone islet of the adults. What we see is that about 90% of people on the bihormonal system have a mean glucose below 154 adults. So it's a big difference in terms of bringing more people yeah. under the 
in, and, and it's going to become increasingly unlikely that you experience a low. And what are we calling a low, by the way? You said in range a couple times. Is that 70 to 180? 70 to 180 is what we're calling in range. Okay. And so that's a low, time in range. A low is 69? Oh, no, no. So yes, uh, certainly that's that's out of range. So that's below range. Right. So we, we, we measure two different, we keep track of two metrics in our, our pivotal trial studies. We had an outcome that looked at how much, what percentage of time do you spend below 70? And what percentage of time do you spend below 54? And the way we, we, we powered the study was we said that you know we we powered the study for statistically for superiority we expected to see a superior outcome in HbA1c in reduction of HbA1c so we we saw super we thought we'd have superiority in A1c relative standard of care and non inferiority in time below fifty four relative standard of care and that's exactly what we found in the trial yeah I I feel like I haven't um like just expressed enough how pretty amazing it is it, just the the meal announcement portion of it. Like, I can't imagine what a, what a relief that must be to people. Did you talk to them about that in like exit surveys and things? We like did. That? Excellent question. So we had, we had focus groups at the end of the trial. So we worked with uh, Jill Weisberg Benchel. Um, she's up in Chicago and she works at the Lurie children's hospital. And so she's an expert in uh, psychosocial and behavioral um uh, outcomes when it comes to you know studying diabetes technologies. So she developed um, validated uh, behavioral and psychosocial tests questionnaires that we gave throughout the study, mm -hmm. um, and also uh, ran the focus groups at the end for people as they came off the device. So we, th that was qualitative. So we have these quantitative questionnaires, and then we had these qualitative focus groups at the end. So we did get to find out you know, how people felt about things like diabetes, distress, fear of hypoglycemia, but also just sort of qualitative measures of how, how people feel about the islet. And I do think you're right about this giving up of carbohydrate counting, this diabetes without numbers is really important to people because we're trying to say that we, we really hope this device is agnostic to levels of literacy and numeracy, to levels of, to, to, uh, to technical acumen, mm -hmm. to socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity. And so we did a lot of work uh, in the trial doing subgroup analyses. We published something in the New England Journal of Medicine after the main study was published uh, in a letter to the editor, looking at these subgroup analyses to show that the people who needed the most improvement in glucose got it from the islet more so than people who were very close to range. Yeah. And so it didn't seem to discriminate against people if you're on MDI therapy and never used a pump versus people on hybrid closed loop. Didn't discriminate against people um, who had never used a CGM versus those who had. What you do see is the people of the highest baseline A1Cs at, at baseline before the study started saw the greatest improvement. And you'd mentioned, you know, I imagine you're seeing people with higher A1Cs than other studies. Our highest A1C was 14.9 at baseline. Yeah. So we brought people in across the mix uh, with, you know, high A1Cs in the double digits. Did that 14 leave at a seven? 6.8. Oh, wow. That's so the 14.9 went to 6.8. Yeah, yeah. That is not... That's anecdotal, though. That's sure. one data I, point. I right? So we had we had other people at A one Cs, you know, maybe of nine that dropped to eight, eight and a quarter, eight and a half, or something like that. So mm -hmm. it's not not everybody sees that remarkable uh, reduction, but it is noteworthy that some do. Yeah. And no. again, and it's a device with you know that you initialize with body weight and you use meal announcements without counting yeah, carbohydrates. It's a, it's a it's a very small uh, barrier to entry, that's for sure. And and I mean, obviously, you're talking about like data that's at the end, this is the average, but not everybody achieved a seven, but that's it's still just worth bringing up that there's a 14 that came down that far is, is insane. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you think you'll get into other countries in any 
time soon or is the US? Yeah, I, I think that um, it's quite surprising how things have changed through the pandemic. So it used to be that med tech companies would first target Europe, as you probably know, mm -hmm. and diabetes med tech was no, no exception to that, where they would start in Europe, they'd get what's called a CE mark, and they'd start distributing in Europe. And then they would work their way into the US with a big pivotal trial, and then they get FDA clearance. Uh, we're doing it the other way around. So we got FDA clearance first, launched in the US first. The next step for us to come to Europe or other countries, OUS, will be a CE mark. Um, what's happened through the pandemic is the CE, CE mark process um, has really changed. It's a much longer process. It's taking, it's taking a very long time to get uh, regulatory clearance outside of the US now. It used to be quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. So it's certainly something we're going to pursue. Our goal at Beta Bionics is to bring this technology to as many people as possible because it is a device that's made for as many people as possible. It's literally designed for that that um, that kind of uptake and that kind of broad demographic uh, adoption. So we certainly want to get this out to OU, uh, OUS, to, to Europe, Middle East, and other countries, uh, other regions. And um, that will require first a CE mark. So unfortunately, that will take a long time just from a regulatory process. It's, yeah. it's certainly more than a year's worth of regulatory review. Right. But it, we, it's, it's certainly something we're going to be doing. I have a fair amount of Canadian listeners that will be mad if I don't just say Canada, like out loud. Of course. In front, in front you of have you. to say Canada out yeah, loud. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, they are literally our next door neighbors. So we've got a, Canada and Mexico. We've got to get out there, right? Listen, and CE mark is the way to start. You shouldn't have let all that smoke come down and choke me out or I would have been a little more, uh, a little more <laughs> feeling about it. Um, okay. So like I told you before we started recording, when I first heard about this, I thought, my gosh, this is amazing, right? Like they're going to have glucagon in the same pump and you know, it's going to stop you from getting low. I have a couple of questions and I'm assuming the, the major holdup was liquid stable glucagon. It had to, mm -hmm. had to exist in the pump for the amount of time, at least you were wearing it. So now that exists, um, and you have access to that. Great. Does so my first like boohoo like I don't know like question is is glucagon doesn't work if you're drunk is that right? No, that isn't right. So we had um, we had looked into that specifically. So Stephen Russell did a clinical trial where he actually brought people into the clinical research center at MGH and got them drunk, <laughs> IV though. So we okay. he actually got a protocol approved, and what he did was he could infuse alcohol intravenously and look at the efficacy of glucagon. Okay. Micro, that is microdose, not big rescue doses, right? We're giving tiny, tiny doses of glucagon. Okay, DIY. I see. All right. It's, and, and it's not basal glucagon. It's not like every five minutes you're going to get a dose of glucagon. It uses glucagon sparingly and only as needed. But the dose you might get at any step where it sees your blood sugar might be, your glucose, CGM glucose might be dropping, or if you're already low, that dose could be one to 2% the size of a rescue dose. That's small. Okay. So tiny little doses. And he gave doses that were comparable to the to the to the doses we would give in the in the bionic pancreas, the bihormonal bionic pancreas, and at different levels of of blood alcohol blood alcohol levels in the in the uh, clinical research center. And he was able to see that there it was it was pretty much insensitive to the levels alcohol levels you'd likely see um, out in the wild. So let's let's put it that way. <laughs> so, so a rescue dose of glucagon might be different in that scenario, but the small amounts you were using were working. Yeah, so he didn't test the rescue doses gotcha. to see if that would be an issue. But definitely, because, you know, the, the the doses we're giving are so small, you're not depleting glycogen stores. Because what glucagon do, does is it breaks down stored glycogen in the liver, which is a stored form of glucose, breaks it down, and it liberates glucose into the blood. And that's how it raises your blood sugar. I, I, I'm asking this question way too ahead, of, but now we're into it already. So would do you foresee the islet being able to rescue 
if you're not drunk in a rescue situation, like if it if it somehow thought this person's going to zero, would it go for it or would it? Tell yeah, you? yeah, it wouldn't release the whole cartridge if that's what you mean, right? It wouldn't do that. And by the way, the amount of glucagon in this little tiny glucagon cartridge is much more than what you'd see in a rescue dose because while it's a small cartridge, it's only it's only one ml. Okay. So it's like, think of a cartridge with only 100 units of insulin. That's the size of this cartridge. It's really tiny. Mm -hmm. But the glucagon we're using, made by Zeeland Pharma, is four times more concentrated than rescue glucagon. Okay, It's four mg per ml versus one mg per ml. So uh, you wouldn't want to ever unload that whole thing. It's it's really a, about a seven day supply of glucagon for the. But by the way, the islet uses it lasts about a week in that little cartridge. But what it would do is it would it wouldn't actually give a rescue dose. But it would continue to give glucagon doses every five minutes if it doesn't see your glucose coming back up. And remember, it also turns insulin off just like the single hormone islet does. Yeah, it would be so it's using yeah. both. It's using the gas and the accelerator. I like to use that analogy of the the insulin is like the gas and the and the and the uh, and the the brake is the I shouldn't say gas and accelerator. I should say brake and accelerator. The insulin is like the accelerator and the glucagon is like the brake. And so you you really want to take your foot off the accelerator and hit the brake if you want to slow down quickly. Mm -hmm. And with the single the, the biohormonal system, you have both. The your disposal okay so hopefully you know the amount of glucagon that it can give should really prevent any need for rescue glucagon as long as it's it, flowing into your under the skin is there an amount of time or a number of like little bumps with glucagon before like doesn't it eventually like just empty your liver and then there's just no more there anymore right yeah and you're not going to get to a point with the biomodal system where you'd get depleted unless okay. you were very sick right so suppose you've been you had a vomiting illness and and you haven't been getting keeping anything down for a few days you mm -hmm. could get into a situation where you're depleted of glycogen stores and then that's no substrate upon which glucagon can act if right. there's no glycogen I, stores I mean, but that, that's it's that, hard to get to that state yeah i was gonna say and in that scenario doesn't matter how you're managing you'd probably be in the hospital one way or the other. i think you're going to be finding your way into the yeah, hospital yeah. in that situation but what we did see in our in our pre-pivotal studies is that you're you know overnight where you're getting just basal insulin overnight. So you're not having a ton of insulin, which helps store glycogen. Mm -hmm. And you're not eating at all. And you've been fasted for a very long time. So you've had no uh, carbohydrates for seven or eight or 10 or 12 hours, right? Since you went to, since you had your dinner, went to sleep. When they got up at the morning, in the morning at 7 a.m. and they start becoming active and they're, they, uh, they're, they might start going low. You'd see these little shots of glucagon, tiny little microdoses at 6 a.m. and 7 a.m. And it would pop them up. So that meant that even though they'd been fasted for 12 hours, they hadn't eaten anything and they'd been getting very low levels of insulin, they still had plenty of glycogen upon which that glucagon could act. Okay. And so we never saw any depletion of glycogen storage, uh, any any evidence of that in any of the trials we did in a, a sort of routine day-to-day -day basis. But we've never studied, you know, pushing it to the limit to see how many days could you go fasting mm -hmm. uh, before you'd run out of uh, of storage. Oh, that's interesting. That I don't know. I, I just imagine that most people, I try hard, but I imagine most people think that rescue glucagon is like sugar that brings up your blood sugar and they don't recognize that it actually signals your liver to you know etc and so on like i i don't know how well that's understood um yeah i mean so. if it were up to me i would if, if it worked which it wouldn't i would rather push sugar than glucagon because it doesn't have to rely on that secondary source of sugar yeah. in your liver that could be depleted when you're sick but there's no way to infuse tiny amounts of sugar under the skin and have it do anything it's, it's we really we do use the hormone just the way the pancreas does that's how the pancreas prevents hypoglycemia it's your yeah. first line of defense people without type 1 their first line of defense against hypoglycemia is glucagon and it's it's it, you know we should not have the hubris to think that we can build a truly biomimetic 
closed loop system without adding glucagon back because the people with type 1 diabetes lose their ability to use glucagon effectively so when the when the autoimmune attack takes out the beta cells that secrete insulin it disrupts the alpha cells ability to release glucagon they still make glucagon they just don't release it in any coordinated and useful way anymore so they really have a dual hormone insufficiency and that should never be ignored yeah. and so that's one of the things we are, we do at beta bionics is not ignore that mm -hmm. right we build an entire technology platform that will look just like this one right it won't be any bigger it'll have you know we have we built a second chamber here to take a glucagon chamber mm -hmm. and this is actually the exact same platform that yeah. we'll be we'll be testing in the pivotal trial with the two hormone system. When is that going to happen? So our goal is to have that start by the end of the year, twenty twenty three. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we want to have that trial start by the end of the year. Now that start that's that, that trial is is huge. So as I mentioned, the the, the single hormone study, the biohormonal pivotal trial, the the bionic pancreas pivotal trial with a single hormone device was the largest automated insulin delivery randomized control trial ever done, mm -hmm. right? Uh, by a long shot. The bihormonal pivotal trial will be way larger. In fact, eight times larger in terms of the number of patient years of exposure. So it won't be a three-month trial. It'll be a 12-month trial. It won't involve 440 people. It'll involve over 700 people. Wow. And we're going to have phases. So by, if we start by the end of this year, the first phase will be a small cohort of 70 or so people, and they'll engage in a crossover trial with the final bihormonal device and the single hormone device that you see here. And people will use both in a crossover design. So they'll spend uh, like four to six weeks in the, in the single hormone islet and four to six weeks in the bihormonal crossover in, the, in random order. Once that study's done, that'll take about six months or so. We read out the data. And if everything looks good and we like the way the system is performing, we lock in and we start the big one-year randomized trial. And a one-year trial doesn't take one year to do. Because when you have 700 people in 30 clinical sites, we had 16 sites in the other trial, 30 sites or so, it takes a half a year just to load everybody into the trial, all 700 people, and then a year for the last person in to finish. That's an 18-month commitment. So it's a long road, right? It's going to be yeah. a couple of years, two and a half years, just to get to the last participant, last visit of the bihormonal trial. Yeah. And then you have to build the FDA package, submit that, and they have to review not just the bihormonal islet, but here's the, the, the big sort of the long pole in the tent. They also have to review the glucagon. Glucagon's never been used chronically. It's only used as a rescue. And right. so Zealand Pharma will have to put in their own application for glucagon, as they call it, their analog of human glucagon, which is, you know, a 12-month, typically a 12-month review process mm -hmm. with the FDA that'll go in parallel with our bihormonal islet. Did, did they have to wait for this first islet to be approved to do that? No. Or is, no, it's just no time. No. No, it's just that we were just, you know, we couldn't do, do too, many too many things, things at, at once. once. Is there anything about any patents you hold that would stop an insulin pump company from going to a dual hormone or? Um, you know, we have we have intellectual property portfolio that I think is pretty robust, not just in terms of the bihormonal, but also the single hormone algorithms. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that our on our algorithm side, we have some IP out there um, on bihormonal that's pretty robust. But ultimately, um you know, we're not engaging in an exclusive relationship with Zealand Pharma. So if somebody wanted to build a dual chamber system, you know, they'd have to sort of work around our IP and build their own algorithms. And they'd have to work with Zealand Pharma to figure out how they're going to use their drug. But it is true that if we do the pivotal trial with the Zealand Pharma forming per ml concentration drug, that particular very specific formulation and get FDA approval of that, any other pump company that builds a dual chamber system would not have to do as long a study with the Zealand Pharma for mig formulation right. because it's been proven out 
to work in, in chronic use this way. So is this going to be two different infusion sets? Well, in the trial, it will be, but ultimately that's not our intent for the commercial product. So we can start the trial and do the pivotal trial with two separate sets. And all of our pre-pivotal studies use two separate sets, and they're both unimedical infusion sets. One was an insulin and one was a glucagon, and we put them right next to each other. They're about a centimeter apart. Okay. Uh, what we'll, we'll ultimately want to do is build a single set that has you know a couple of cannula in it. You'd insert that as in one go every like three days or so. Yeah. But you will have two separate tubes that you could sort of pull, tie together like speaker wire here, like at the head mm -hmm. head, head, head jack wire. Um, and the reason it's important that you have the two separate tubes is because the insulin cartridge might last three days on average, and the average adult say, and the glucagon cartridge might last a week. They're not going to be changed on the same frequency. There's no reason to change them both out if one is still has a few days left in the cartridge. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I was just trying to like, like I always have uh, people always ask. I mean, for years, when is they always say they, when are they going to put them all in one device? And I'm like, I don't know what you're thinking about. Like you want like a CGM and a pump in the same like structure, which I'm like, that can't happen. Like forget business. No. Like, it, like, like functionally it can't happen. Right. Well, the thing about it is that with, with transcutaneous CGM sensors, right. They typically are lasting 10 to 14 days. Right. And we now have infusion sets out there that are FDA approved to be used for up to seven days. But they don't, on average, last seven days. That's what they can be used up to. Right. But on average, they last shorter than that. Well, why is that? Well, mo mainly, what what fails with infusion sets very often is the adhesive. Yeah. It fails, and and you know when you are infusing liquid, you know, insulin under the skin, the adhesive, and you, you have a tube that's connected to it. As you move around, that tube is putting a little bit of stress on the infusion set all day long. Every time you twist and turn, and it's tugging on that set. And so the adhesive ultimately is overwhelmed. And after three, four days, some people can run it out longer, but other people can't. And it depends on the, how the adhesive works with your skin and so forth. But generally, anyone, someone who uses an infusion set for four or five days will start to see, if they go well beyond its intended use, will start to see the set fail. And what happens is the insulin starts flowing up around the cannula and wets the skin and doesn't go into the body. Yeah, yeah. But, it, but if you look at a sensor, you put a sensor in and there's it, not nearly as much stress in pulling on it. There's nothing connected to it, mm -hmm. right? Your shirt to touches it, but you're not pulling on it with a tube every now and again. And that adhesive can really last longer. And it's more forgiving, the sensor under the skin, uh, if it moves a little bit around relative to the tissue versus a cannula where insulin can then leak out. Yeah. So they just, they have very inherently different life, life scale, uh, lifetime, you know, or characteristic times so and they can stay under the skin. I wish people could have seen you because I enjoyed watching the, the engineer and you go, no, like, like the face you made. And yeah. cause I always think that when the, I always think like simple things, like, first of all, what do you like? You're going to build us like a, a, a an omnipod that has a, a dexcom in it like that how's that going to happen and what yeah. happens if your sensor goes bad in three days but your pumps work or two days but your pumps working fine? like you want to rip the whole thing off like i understand the desire but it's always i always feel like that question's asked by somebody who's never built anything before in their whole life and you know yeah, yeah. there's just inherently different uh um sort of um lifelines or whatever you would say the sort of the, the lifetime expectancy of those two systems are so inherently different yeah. and you don't want them to be coupled because you as you just said you don't want to have to change all three because only one failed right right now okay all right so and i've had you for a long time longer than i promised um i have one question and then i'm gonna ask you if there's anything we haven't talked about a number of people ask me i let how like you know 
40 carbs of, I don't know, a soft pretzel and 40 carbs of cotton candy, 40 and 40, but significantly different impacts. It doesn't matter to the islet? No, it really doesn't because, um, as I mentioned before, it's because the corrections algorithm is always running in the background. So suppose you have what you're really getting at, I think, is a food that's got a very high glycemic index mm-hmm. versus one that's got a very low glycemic index and takes longer to raise your blood sugar. Uh, or it's just more muted, right? You just don't go up as much. It's just it's just, it's just, just extended out to a, over a longer period of time. So the islet is watching every five minutes. And it has, unlike you know most hybrid close-up systems, it has the occasion or the opportunity to dose every five minutes if it needs to. So it's always on top of it. So if you have something, if you do the meal announcement for that 40 grams of cotton candy, you're going to see a very fast rise. And the meal announcement is going to kick in. And the the it's going to keep track. The islet keeps track of the insulin in that meal announcement dose that it just gave. And it watches the glucose rise. And it says, okay, you've got all this insulin pending. I'm keeping track of its rise and its clearance. And I'm watching your glucose rise. Now, if you rise very quickly, it might just stay in the background for a while. There'll come a point where it'll say, I'm going to, need to add a little bit more correction insulin now because I've, the correction algorithm has been quiet. But now I think that you're, you've risen high enough that the meal announcement insulin, even the insulin that's pending from that meal announcement isn't enough. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to add a little bit more. And then it's going to watch, it's going to keep watching. And it's, it's very patient because it's keeping track of the insulin it just added in addition to the meal announcement insulin. And then it'll see it crest. If it's a very high glycemic index food, it's, gonna, it's just going to rise quickly and then stop and then start coming down. And it'll see it come down. And it'll just back off. Your, your blood sugar could be 250, 220. If it sees it slow down, it's going to back off. It doesn't care that you're a hyperglycemic. It knows that insulin's coming. It's going to mm-hmm. say, be patient. And now what if instead you didn't rise nearly as much because it's a slow, a low glycemic index food. Now you went up to 190 or 220 instead of 250 or 260. And it, it sees that meal announcements enough. It's really enough. I'm going to stay back. And I'm going to stay quiet. And now an hour's gone by and you're sort of sit there and now you're, you're coming down to 170 and it's an hour and a half after the meal announcement, but you're still a little bit, you're still a, a little bit, um, stubborn. And then it's going to say, well, that meal announcement is getting old now. And I'm the correction algorithm checking in every five minutes. I've decided at this step, finally, that meal announcement is not enough given that you're 170. I'm going to start adding a little correction insulin now. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's very patient in looking at the, the meal announcement doses and how much your glycemic excursion has risen and how much it's coming, it's responding to that before it, it weighs in on adding more. But it's always there to add it if it needs to. And it's using very precise mathematics to make that very objective decision. It's not, it doesn't get, it, it's not irrational and it doesn't rage bolus, right. but it does ask that you, the user be patient. And what that usually means is don't keep looking at the islet and, and expect magical results and say, oh my God, I'm still 170. Just let it do its thing. And that is the, ultimately the message that we want to convey to people who use the islet is let it let it work. Don't don't fuss over it too much. Just make sure you maintain the care and feeding of it. Right. But let it do its thing, and don't try and meddle with it too much, because you you know it, it won't help. It doesn't it doesn't get better glucose control uh, just because you're watching it, mm-hmm. and it doesn't get worse glucose control if you don't watch it. That's another thing we learned from the pivotal trial. You don't have to look at it all the time to get the same equally good control. And you know, with other diabetes therapies, right? We know that the more you interact with a finger stick meter, the more you interact with your CGM or an insulin pen or a pump or a hybrid close-up system, the the better your glucose control typically is. If you look at a group of people who interact frequently with their you know, diabetes therapy or diagnostic 
or, or another group of people who interact infrequently with it. Yeah. Those who interact frequently tend to do better statistically. We don't see that with the islet. We see that it's pretty agnostic to how much you engage with the device as long as you're taking care of it. And that's that's a really, I think, a really important point sure. to remember. No, it's a bonus for sure. And um, the other thing, the other thing I like to just sort of send, send take, have you, no, oh, go ahead. No, no, I was, no, please, you're fine. I'm, 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 I'm trying to wrap you up. If you want to keep talking, I'm happy for you to keep talking. I'm just trying to help you out of this. <laughs> oh, yeah, very good. I do, uh, I do have a call coming up in a few minutes, but I, I would say this, that what is unique here with the, there's a number of things about the island I think that are unique, right? It's unique in several ways, but importantly, it determines 100% of every therapeutic dose of insulin. Hmm. And there's, it's not a system that where you can go and override the dose. You can't add a correction insulin bolus. You can't add a meal dose. You can't say, I didn't give myself an, enough insulin, so I'm going to add 20 grams of carbs and it's going to then figure out what to dose, which is what a lot of people do in some of these systems. It determines 100% of every therapeutic dose and you don't override that and your physician doesn't override that. Yeah. So that is that is not a hybrid system. A hybrid system inherently means that you are playing a role in insulin dosing decision, you and your physician, as well as the auto, so, some automation. Mm. That is not what's going on here. And as a result of that, you have to really get comfortable with this new world of fully automated insulin dosing decision making right. that's being handed to a device. I have to say, I'm actually impressed, and I think it's smart that you're talking about it so directly. You, like you're not doing any like marketing, like talking around. You're like, look, this is what it does. If that's yeah. good for you, then great. And if not, it was nice talking to you. Like, like yeah. I, I think that's terrific. I, I don't see enough of that. I've been very impressed with that the entire time you've been going over this. So I really do appreciate it. Do you think there's anything we didn't talk about that we should have? Um, not really. I mean, I guess it's more more reemphasizing uh, this idea that the reason I think we can talk so frankly about is, first of all, we want to build technology that's in the best interest of people with type 1. And we've always been committed to that. And that means that you know the islet i think is that device that is very complementary to some of the high tech out there that does serve the interests or the needs of those people who are already in good control mm -hmm. or who have the best have the access to the the best resources the you know, the best healthcare and um you know and so we're trying to to address that other segment which i ha i think so happens to be the majority of people with type 1 yeah. who don't have all the resources and all the access to the best health care you realize that you know uh, 75% of us counties do not have a single endocrinologist in their borders right this is something that the ozers published a few years ago and whereas 95% of people uh, counties in the us so 75% of counties don't even have one endo 95% of counties have at least one primary care physician. Primary care physicians can't use that high tech. It's just, it's, it's, it's anathema to them. I mean, they don't have, they don't have the resources. They don't have the staff. They don't have the training. Yeah. They can't use that tech. But we think the islet is, is a device, a very high tech device that is really the first device that plays very well in primary care because it is for that large 80% of people who aren't meeting goal. And I do think for those who are meeting goal, many of them will still prefer the islet because they're going to be unburdened of a lot of the the cognitive effort and, and into the, that burden that goes along with constantly being all over your diabetes management all the time. Right. And there'll be others in that same group who just you know are are just too anxious to to give that control up. So it's it's really all about finding those people that that are going to benefit from it and who uh, who will be able to do that comfortably and um i think it's just a, it's a lot of people yeah. out there that that uh that we're trying to serve will you be adding sales people 
I mean, it's because it feels like you're going to have to go to non-traditional doctors to talk about yeah. insulin pumps. You know, yeah, we have. So we have a very small group at, at start. So we've got about 16 people on the sales team right now who are focused in those eight territories I was telling you about. And what what we've been doing these past couple of months, Stephen Russell and I have been going to all those territories with each of the two sale the, the the two commercial people in each of those regions and meeting with the clinical sites that we've targeted in those regions to launch the product and spending a few hours with each of those cl- clinical teams and with our commercial team with us at each of those sites so that they get introduced to these folks who we've been working with for years, frankly, or many of them. And so that's how we're doing it at first is we're sort of introducing the commercial team to the people we've worked with over the years in the clinical setting, in the clinical research setting, and and ourselves being introduced to the clinical people who aren't doing clinical research, but who work with our clinical research scientists, collaborators. So that introduction is happening and that's where we're focusing the launch. And then as we get experience in those eight territories in the fall, then we expand more ter- to more territories. So we've been doing a lot of traveling, getting on the road and seeing a lot of these sites. And we've been back and forth across the country, you know, 17 sites in the past nine months, nine weeks. Wow. That's amazing. No, <laughs> it's I just been a busy, a busy pace. I mean, because you, you're going to go to the trouble of, I mean, listen to this story, how long it took to make this thing. And now it's the last piece, right? Like, how do you, yeah. how do you set it in someone's hand? And it's not apples to apples, but I'm a person who's trying to deliver something to people too. And you would never know it if I wouldn't say it out loud, but that's the hardest part of this job. It's making the thing is great. And then giving it to somebody is, it's the hard part, you know? So. Yeah. And that's, it's all about scalability. So I'll, I'll leave you with this, this notion. If you think about what the diabetes control and complications trial did between 1983 and 1993 was to test the hypothesis, right? This was a landmark study. Many clinical sites across the country took 1,500 people and randomized about half of them into conventional therapy, they called it, which was you know not multiple shots a day or insulin pump therapy. It was just a one or two shots a day. And that or and or intensive therapy where they were checking their blood sugar seven times a day, but importantly, they were giving multiple shots many times a day or using a pump. Mm-hmm. And what they found was they could dramatically reduce mean mean glucose and HbA1c in the intensive therapy group and sustain that for a period of, you know, six and a half years on average for each person at huge effort on the part of the patients who randomized to intensive therapy and the physicians that supported them, the clinicians that supported them. And they were testing the hypothesis back then. It wasn't known that good glycemic control was necessary to stave off long-term complications of diabetes. That was that was a contested point back in the early 80s. Mm. And until we had the HbA1c test and insulin pump therapy and finger stick meters, we couldn't really test the hypothesis. You know, if people, you take a bunch of people and control their glucose well, do they have fewer long-term complications than those who you don't? And resoundingly, the DCCT, the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial, showed us that by 1993, that you'd markedly reduce long-term complications. And that study took about 10 years to do. And 30 years ago this month, it was read out to the diabetes community that you got to do this. Well, you know, 10 years after that study, we started building the bionic pancreas. And in that 10-year period, and we've been doing it for 20 years, but in this period after the DCCT, what we also found is it's not scalable. You can't do what the DCCT did in a large scale. Everybody's A1C is more like in the eights, low eights, not seven, which is what they were able to do with the the DCCT. So it wasn't for 30 years after the DCCT that there's a device now that we think can reach broadly a a, a much larger audience than, than most diabetes tech. 
and people with type one, that is something you can put in your pocket and you type in your body weight and do these few meal announcements a day and keep it going and get glucose control that's comparable to what the DCCT achieved in the intensive group. And so we sort of answered the question, is there a scalable solution here? Yeah. And I think the islet is that is that device. No, it's a, it, it sounds like it. I mean, I've really appreciated you telling me so much about it, but I'm excited for you to to get it going and, and get it out there. How, how long do you think it'll be? It's June till I see somebody online going, I use an islet. Online? Yeah, like somebody I takes think, a picture on their Instagram. Like, when am I going to see that? Like the, in, a mu- in a month. Really? In less than a, yeah, I think in a month. Okay. I think we'll have a, one or two people at the ADA conference next week on the island. Okay. Oh, wow. But on Instagram, I think, on, you know, on social media, I think you'll see something come up within the next month. Pretty amazing. Okay. Ed, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Of this. course, Scott. Thanks for having me. Hey, huge thanks to Ed for coming on the show today and telling us all about Islet. I also want to thank US Med for sponsoring this episode of the Juice Box Podcast. I'll remind you to go to usmed.com forward slash juice box or call 888-721-1514 to get your free benefits check so you can get started with US Med. Check out that private Facebook group, Juice Box Podcast, Type 1 Diabetes on Facebook. It's absolutely free. For everybody, I don't care what kind of diabetes you have. I don't care how you eat. There's a beautiful community there with over 40,000 people in it waiting for you. This podcast is sponsored every week by great companies. I'll list them in a moment, but if you have the need or the interest, please use my links when you're finding out more. It really does help to support the podcast. If you want to check out the Omnipod, Dexcom, US Med, the Contour Next Gen Blood Glucose Meter, Gvoke Hypopen, Athletic Greens, Cozy Earth, Better Help, Touched by Type 1, they're all there. Just look in the show notes of the audio app you're listening in now or go to juiceboxpodcast.com. When you click on those links, you're supporting the production of this podcast and keeping it free. The podcast is sponsored today by Better Help. Better Help is the world's largest therapy service and is 100% online. With Better Help, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. Betterhelp.com forward slash juicebox. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. And when you use my link, you'll save 10% on your first month of therapy. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. Talk to them however you feel comfortable, text, chat, phone, or video call. If your therapist isn't the right fit, for any reason at all, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. And the best part for me is that with BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you. And you're going to get more scheduling flexibility and a more affordable price. I myself have just begun using BetterHelp. BetterHelp.com forward slash juice box. That's BetterHelp. Help, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash juice box. Save 10% on your first month of therapy. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back very soon with another episode of the Juice Box Podcast.